the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, this entire whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? religions share the same corrupted root that war chants and death curses have been erroneously remembered and recited by the victims of ancient enchantments spellbound by a death cult who seeks to sacrifice us to save themselves from the blood-soaked slab that is their apocalyptic altar their time machine to armageddon this episode is not for the faint of heart. Open your mind and prepare to have your idols smashed as we entertain the possibility that Satan and Jesus Christ may have been variations or portrayals of the very same person. Could the Son of God be the devil himself? Here to discuss this with us is author and scholar Chris Bjorknes. Like I said, not for the faint of heart. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And enjoy this episode with Christopher Bjorknes. According to the Apocalypse of Abraham and the Gospel of Judas, the Apocalypse of Abraham was written at the same time that the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel, was written. And it stated that Jesus was sent among the nations to seduce them and tempt them, which is the role of Satan into worshiping this idol Jesus and that he would ultimately return and destroy all of them and destroy all messianic Jews who had converted to Christianity and that that would be a cleansing process which would remove the bad seed of the mixed multitude which had entered into the Israelite tribes when Moses undertook the exodus and many Egyptians took flight together with the Israelites. And they believed that Jesus would serve this useful purpose of weeding out all of those who converted to Christianity. And one of the themes of the New Testament is that the Pharisees and the mobs of Judahites who surrounded Jesus said that he was Beelzebub, that he was Satan, and that he was possessed by Satan, and that he had come to tempt them into idolatry. So it's clear that the authors of the Gospels understood all of this and encoded it into the Gospels. But the Apocalypse of Abraham, which was written at exactly the same time, didn't hide anything. It stated exactly that. 
that even Satan worshipped Jesus because he was so evil. And Satan kissed Jesus and embraced Jesus. And that it was Jesus who would be sacrificed to Satan in order to relieve Israel of all of its sins and take on all the inequities of Israel. So Jesus is the scapegoat. And in the oral tradition, the scapegoat is given to Satan to pay the ransom for Adam's sin and to pay the ransom for the sins of humanity. Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcasts. You know who I am. And we have a special guest today. He is an author and he is someone that I'm looking forward to getting to know. We have Christopher Bjorknes here. And we're going to be talking about a book that, or several books, and I think you might enjoy. You might be enthralled. You might even feel this is a little controversial, but this is the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, and I know that we've got a very wide variety of listeners of all different faiths and non-faiths, so I'm excited for this one. We're going to be talking about the satanic secrets of Jesus Christ with Mr. Christopher Bjorkney. Sir, how are you today? Welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. I'm very good. How are you? And thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm doing really well. Uh, the weather has finally become a little overcast, which why would I be excited about that? Well, it's been incredibly hot this month. So <laughs> seems like we're getting a little relief on this Monday afternoon. And I'm glad that I'm not sweating over here. Otherwise, we, we might not have our the video on. So here we are. And you have some slides, too, which is even better. Yeah, I do. I, I uh, prepared a bunch of slides to help explain because I think that seeing the visual images is very striking and uh, will help people to better understand what it is I'm explaining. All right. Well, before we get into the subject matter, I do want to ask you a couple questions. Uh, first and foremost, what initially drew you to studying these topics? You, you haven't just written this series. You've written a couple different books um, that are all available on your website, which will be linked in the description. But what initially drew you to this interest? All of my life, I have been studying Greek philosophy and uh, Greek mythology. And I knew from a very early age that uh, Christianity mimicked many of the things from the Greeks. Even when I was a very young child, probably kindergarten age, I realized that the story of the wolf in sheep's clothing in the Bible uh, was copied from Aesop's fables of the wolf in sheep's clothing. And that led me on a long journey and I have articles going back to the 90s that are registered in the Copyright Office about these kinds of things. And one of the things I learned early on, probably when I was in high school, was that the um, Alexandrian Jewish Platonic philosopher Philo Eudeus um, incorporated Platonic philosophy into Judaism. And I recognized the fact that the way in which he did this set the stage for Christianity by creating um, this character of the Logos, who would be a mediator 
between God and humanity. Uh, I fully understood the implications that Christianity evolved out of Platonic philosophy and out of this philosophy of Philo-Judeus. And then um, later on, I arrived at the conclusion that uh, Christianity was actually a weaponized form of religion that was meant to undermine the Romans and Greeks because the imperial Romans and Greeks had oppressed the people of Judea and had conquered them. And they vastly outnumbered them. They had terrifically more forces so that the only way for the Judeans to fight back would be religiously. And they had a model for this because uh, Philo, Judeus, and the Alexandrian Jews lived in uh, Egypt, in Alexandria, they were aware of the facts that the Greeks had created a religion in North Africa in order to make a homogenous, um, universal religion that the North Africans could follow, which would help to uh, foster peace and stability in the Greek empire that controlled North Africa and primarily Egypt. And they created the worship of a god named Serapis, who was a syncretization of the Greek religions with the Egyptian religion and the worship of Isis and the bull Apis. And this figure, um, Serapis, served as a role model for what was to become Jesus Christ. And I think the Alexandrian Jews were aware of the fact that they could undermine foreign religions based upon this model, which the Greeks themselves had utilized. So they turned the tables on the Greeks and the Romans, and they created uh, Christianity as a subversive religion, which would cause the Greeks and Romans to abandon all of those gods which had made their empire so strong. And in the ancient world, the ancients believed that the gods would fight on their side and help them to attack their enemies. And um, it, the same chief god was being passed down from all of the empires which had conquered Judea. It went from the Egyptian Osiris to the Greek Zeus to the Roman Jove. And... Um, I believe that the Israelites wanted to take on this Meta God as their own God to help them in battling their enemies. And this was a very common practice in the ancient world. When a people was conquered, it realized that it got, its gods were ineffective, and it would very often adopt and syncretize the gods of its conquerors into its own religion in hopes of gaining uh, that supernatural protection and supernatural power. So I believe that the Israelites undertook a process of swapping gods with the Romans, Greeks, and Egyptians, and they imposed their own god, Yahweh, onto the Romans and Greeks, and in exchange, they took on the Platonic uh, philosophy and metaphysics and the gods of the Greek mystery religions the Orphic, um, Eleusinian, and Samothracian mystery religions, which became the oral traditions of Judaism. And the Septuagint, the original uh, in Greek 
manuscript of what was to become the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible or Tanakh was written in Alexandria, Egypt, and it was written in Greek. And I and other scholars believe that uh, this was the original uh, version of the Old Testament, and it was crafted sometime around 270 B.C. And all the stories of the Exodus were fabrications, and we have proof of this in the um, Elephantine papyri, which were found in Egypt and which date to about 450 to 490 B.C., and none of those um, Judaic manuscripts contain anything about the Exodus. They don't contain the name Moses. They don't contain um, any of the Old Testament stories uh, related to Egypt. So I believe the whole story of the Exodus was a fabrication uh, meant allegorically to symbolize the exchange of the Egyptian gods for the Israelite gods between uh, the Israelites, the Egyptians, and the Greeks. And it was an exodus of the gods, not an exodus of the Israelites. That's one hell of a thesis there. Wow. This is a great way to start an episode. And I'm so glad you, you went in there with as many details as you did, because I was going to ask you what relic relevant prerequisite information uh, the listeners and myself should be equipped with when looking into these subjects. I mean, obviously, Greek mythology and Greek history would be very helpful, as well as possibly the, the history of Hebrew culture. But um, we our story sort of starts back then and, and then gets fast forwarded to the transition of the age of Aries and the age of Pisces. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes, that is extremely significant because um, as most people are probably familiar, the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning in chapter one starts off with the uh, mythology that there are six days of creation. And those six days of creation represent a thousand years each. And creation in Judaism is not a moment, it's a process. And that process occurs over the period of 6,000 years, which is culminating right now. Uh, according to the Anno Lucis calendar, it began 4,000 BC. And uh, according to the Anno Mundi calendar, the Hebrew calendar, it uh, started 240 years after that. So we either arrived at the end of creation, which means the destruction of the world in the year 2000 AD, or we will arrive at it in the year 2240 AD, depending on which time scheme is utilized. The Freemasons and uh, the Shabbatians utilize the Anno Lucis calendar, so they believe the world ought to have ended in the year 2000 which was a very significant period. Now, uh, they always broke up this 6,000-year passage of the six days of creation into three 2,000-year periods, which mirrored um, the ages of the Zodiac. And it went from uh, Taurus to Aries to Pisces and 
this was to signify the entire 6,000-year period. And the transition from Aries to Pisces was meant to be the transition from the age of the Jewish empire to the age of the two Leviathans, the twin serpents of the book of Isaiah. And in the Septuagint, they had planned for there to be two distinct messiahs. There's not just the suffering messiah, son of Joseph, who became Jesus Christ. There is also the figure of the triumphant messiah, messiah, son of David. Going deep into the oral traditions, as opposed to the written traditions of the Septuagint and the Old Testament, the suffering Messiah, which appears in Isaiah chapter 53, as opposed to the triumphant Messiah, which appears in Isaiah chapter 9 and in many of the Psalms, the soul of the Messiah uh, exists within the suffering Messiah, Messiah, son of Joseph. And that soul is the soul of primordial chaos. It is called Yechida in Hebrew. And chaos is called tohu. And there is tohu vavohu choshech. In the beginning, there was formlessness, emptiness, and darkness. And that was separated from the light, which came later. So the most ancient soul is that primordial soul of chaos, uh, emptiness, and darkness. And that is the soul of Jesus Christ, Yahida Mashiach. So his blood, blood represents the soul, is the soul of the two messiahs. And ultimately, the two messiahs are the two serpents, the serpent of light and the serpent of darkness. They are the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is referred to as the tree of death in the Zohar, which is the chief and original book of Kabbalah. And in order for the soul to exist in the material world, it requires a vessel. And that vessel is the body. And the body of the twin messiahs exists in Messiah, son of David, the triumphant messiah. The soul that he currently bears is an inferior soul. There are five levels of soul. There are three animal levels. And there are two holy levels. And the highest level is the holy level of Yehida, which Jesus bears. And that is one of the reasons why Jesus has to die. When he dies, his soul leaves his body and enters into the body of Messiah, son of David. And then Messiah, son of David, who is now simply the vessel, becomes complete body and soul. And the soul of Messiah, son of Joseph, enters into the vessel of the body of the soul of Messiah, son of David. And then he can take over on the seventh day, the Sabbath millennium. So what had to occur in the fifth and sixth day, in other words, in the age of Pisces, was Messiah, son of Joseph, who is Satan, who bears the soul of chaos, darkness, and emptiness has to enter into the world of the nations and subvert them. And this was the plan that was stated in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, 
And one of the primary passages which discusses that is in Isaiah 63, where it talks about the Messiah, son of Joseph, the suffering Messiah of the book of wisdom of uh, Isaiah 53, being the um, agent of the gods on earth who, quote, treads the winepress. Treading the winepress means stomping on uh, the heads of mankind and extracting their blood, which is their soul, in order to derive the magical power that that soul contains. This is derived from the Egyptian mythology of the gods Shesmu and Unas. Unas was a jealous god like Yahweh, and he wanted to kill all the other gods and steal their magical power. And he had a god under him called Shesmu, who was a cannibalistic butcher god. And this appears in... Um, the uh, cannibal hymns in the pyramid texts. And I can show you a slide of that later. But anyway, this god Shesmu is known as the god who treads the wine press. And in the Egyptian depictions of Shesmu, bunches of grapes appear as bunches of human heads. So the whole concept is decapitating uh, those gods and those people that Unas wants to consume, Shesmu does that. He tramples them in the wine press to extract their blood and convert it into wine. In the Egyptian sacrifices, blood was often substituted for wine. And the Egyptians viewed wine in a negative light, as did the Israelites, because wine imparts chaos to the mind. And they um, viewed chaos as bad, as evil. There was a serpent, um, Apep, that the sun god Ra would battle with every night in order to bring forth the dawn as a new manifestation of creation. So there was this constant battle between light and darkness, and it was important to keep them separated. And that's why Genesis uh, begins with that story of this chaos conf between light and darkness and the separation of the two. Jesus represents the darkness, represents Satan. And his role, according to the Old Testament, is to enter into the Gentile world, get the nations to trust in him, and then to return as the Antichrist and slaughter all of the nations. And the Christ ultimately becomes the Antichrist at the end of the age. And the whole process subverts the nations by destroying the pagan gods. Like Shesmu, Jesus is a deicidal cannibalistic god who consumes all the gods of the pagans and absorbs their souls, their blood, and feeds them to his master god, Unas. And that is precisely what Jesus Christ does for his master god, Yahweh. So I think this whole Christian conception is a mimicry of the Egyptian wine press treading god Shesmu in the form of the um, Judahite wine press treading god Jesus. And Jesus is called uh, the one who treads the wine press, both in the Old Testament prophecies that he would arrive in Isaiah 63, and then again in Revelation chapters 14 and 19. 
He is referred to as the wine press God who exterminates all of humanity to create a new heavenly kingdom as opposed to the earthly kingdom. So the nations were duped into effectively committing collective suicide by worshiping this infiltrator God who killed off all of their own native gods, all of their pagan gods, absorbed all of that magical power for the God Yahweh and transferred the soul of Yahida from the nations to the Israelites. And this had been a longstanding tradition in uh, Canaan, among the Canaanites, who worshipped the god Moloch. It was always traditional in Canaan, which became Palestine and in, included uh, the area of Judea. It was traditional for um, families to sacrifice their firstborn children to the god Moloch by throwing them into a bowl-shaped oven and consuming them, uh, immolating them in the flames of Moloch. So there was this passionate hatred of the firstborn because the firstborn represent chaos, formlessness, and darkness. And the secondborn represent the light. And in the Septuagint, there is this constant need to separate the light from the darkness. The Israelites have to be separated as a people, as it says in Leviticus, from the darkness of the nations, or else they become infected by the darkness. And in Kabbalah, there are two distinct universes. There is the universe of the Sitra Achra, which is the other side, the evil inclination, the side of darkness, which is uh, composed of evil, corrupt matter in the form of shells, which are called kelipot. Then there is the Sitra Yamina and the four worlds of the Sitra Yamina. Those four worlds are Kedusha. They are holy. They are the worlds of light. So the Israelites believe that they exist as the light and the nations exist as the darkness and that the world is corrupted by the existence of this um, polarity between these two forces. And all of this also relates to androgyny, because human beings were originally created in the image of the gods, and all the gods were androgynous. Yahweh was initially an androgyne composed of his male aspect, Yahweh, and his female aspect, Shekinah the queen of heaven, who was known to the Canaanites as the goddess Asherah, who was a prostitute goddess, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of the sea, who hovers over the primordial waters of chaos. So chaos represents the female aspect, which is the darkness of the womb. The male aspect, Yahweh, represents the light. The light is semen. The semen impregnates the womb of chaos and establishes divine order. And that divine order is established in the form of the law. So it is very similar to the process of bearing children, the metaphysical principles in the cosmology of Judaism and most all the ancient religions follow this belief that initially everything was androgynous, where the male and the female were combined into one. 
they were then separated into the light and the darkness, the male and the female, like the yin and the yang. And it is only by the commingling of those two things that, can cre that creation can be formed. Initially, when creation is first manifested, there is perfect divine order, which is very close to God, because the light is initially extremely strong. And conceive of this as the daylight. That light is then absorbed like the moon going from the new moon to the full moon, where the moon becomes illum illuminated. So it is a process of chaos absorbing that light, which produces entropy and um, changes the world from perfection back into its chaotic state. And that occurs over those six days of creation. Now, the Jews believed that Yahweh was an evil God, and this became manifest in Gnosticism, when Yahweh was referred to as Samael, who is the devil, and referred to as Yolta Baov, who is also the devil. They're all the same figure. This devil is what was known to the Greeks as a cacodemon. A cacodemon is a malevolent, misanthropic, evil god that must be worshipped and appeased because it can curse a nation and it can exterminate a nation. So the Israelites believed that they had to worship Yahweh and offer him sacrifices and pretend to be obedient to his law or he would exterminate them. And the whole Old Testament is a series of the curses that this cacodemon Yahweh iterated to the Israelites, warning them that if they did not obey him, he would exterminate them. And the other primary theme of the Old Testament is the fact that the Israelites always rejected this cacodemon Yahweh and sought foreign gods that were benevolent and loving gods. They sought to escape Yahweh. And whenever they did that, Yahweh made good on his threats and his curses, and he terribly punished them. And one of the ways that he punished them was by destroying his own temple and by sending them into exile. They were exiled in Egypt. They were exiled in Babylon. And they were exiled for 2,000 years, initially into the Roman Empire and then throughout the world. So they always understood that Yahweh was evil, and they associated Yahweh with light and with the creator God, the father God, the semen God that emits light into chaos. And they viewed that as a negative thing because they perceived restricting chaos as limiting their own freedom and imposing the irrational laws of the God Yahweh on the Jewish people. And they thought that the process of the six days of creation should be the process of destroying Yahweh's evil material world. And the Gnostics made all of these oral tradition beliefs public. And so this process of tikkun olam is the process of combining the daylight with the darkness so that the darkness can absorb the magical powers and the intense energy of the daylight 
but do it in such a way that it is not ordered in the way that Yahweh wants it ordered, but instead is ordered according to the will and the intellect of Jewish people themselves, so that they themselves become the gods who are the masters of chaos and can impart whatever it, order it is that their will and their intellect deems fit and thinks ought to be the nature of reality. So they become the masters of chaos. And the, the secret that has been carefully guarded by the written tradition of Judaism is the fact that Satan is the ultimate higher God and that Satan is the loving, benevolent goddess, Shekinah, Shekinah, who has followed the Jewish people throughout the exile and protected them. And Yahweh is the evil, threatening God who is constantly cursing the Israelites. And they believe that after this 6,000-year period, they will attain the knowledge, the science and technology, which will make them masters over chaos, and they will kill Yahweh by simply disbelieving in him, because Yahweh is an egregore, which is created by the worship of the Israelites. So after this 6,000-year period, they will abandon the Torah, and by abandoning the Torah, they will dissolve this egregore of Yahweh and will themselves become gods. And they believe that it was Satan in uh, the Garden of Eden who was the benevolent God who offered up the knowledge that would enable them to do it and offered them the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus Christ returned as Satan hanging on the cross. The cross is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is the serpent hanging in that tree on his cross. And that's exactly what the Gnostics said. And I have um, slides we can go through later that will demonstrate all of that. Now, it's important to understand that according to the early Christians and uh, all of Judaism in the period in which Christianity manifested itself, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was thought to be a grapevine. And there are documents which say that Samael, Satan, the serpent, planted that tree in the Garden of Eden. Now, that is significant because Jesus offers his blood up as wine. He is the grapes, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, since it's a grapevine, is grapes. So when Jesus extracts his blood in the form of wine, what he is doing is the exact same thing that the serpent did when it offered the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve. Jesus Christ came back to offer that same fruit in the form of his flesh as bread and his blood as the grape juice, the wine of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that is where the term gnosis is derived from. Gnosis in Greek means knowledge. And Jesus is the benevolent God, Satan, who offers mankind knowledge so that mankind can develop science and technology up to the point where they themselves become gods and can then kill all the other gods. And that is what so angered Yahweh, the evil cacodemon Yahweh, that he expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. 
and their punishment was that they were then cursed with death. The Garden of Eden existed in that early period of creation when the light was bright and there was divine order. In that period, the garden itself provided everything that humanity needed to sustain themselves. If they were hungry, they could eat the fruits of the garden. They did not need clothing, and they could live in nature. Nature provided everything. Once they consumed knowledge, Yahweh cursed them to work the barren land and produce their own food. And Cain who is the child of the serpent in the Garden of Eden and Eve, and is the firstborn, signifying chaos. Cain's soul, by the way, was reincarnated in Esau, and Jesus bears the soul of Cain, which is the highest soul, the soul of chaos, Yahida. Cain was cursed to go out and wander and construct cities. When humanity constructed cities and began to work the land, the ancients viewed that as a curse and a, uh, a disillusion of the divine order, which provided everything that humanity needed in nature, into an ever-distancing uh, realm further and further away from God, in which mankind imposed its own order onto chaos. And that burdened mankind. And the way that the Israelites interpreted this is that they believed that initially the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was unripe. And it was a curse instead of a blessing. And it was poisonous instead of curative. So that when Adam and Eve consumed it, this knowledge was destructive instead of healing. And that is why Cain's descendant, Tubal Cain, was taught from Satan, the fallen angel, and this is uh, recorded in uh, the book of Enoch. He was taught the arts of metallurgy so that he could create weapons and armor. And another story that relates to this is the Tower of Babel. All of humanity spoke one language and they could share their knowledge and cooperate with their knowledge to build the Tower of Babel. And the oral tradition of Judaism maintains that the Tower of Babel was built so that human beings could ascend to heaven and kill the gods and become gods themselves. So there is always this story that humans are acquiring knowledge to turn themselves into God. But there is a process by which this knowledge becomes ripe. So the... Um, Israelites think that they were cheated out of this knowledge because they were the second born. They came much later. They did not arrive until the descendants of Abraham, 2,000 years into the 6,000 years. And they viewed themselves as the second born of light who lack this uh, highest soul of Yehida. So like Unas, and like Shesmu, they have to eliminate the nations and claim their soul and claim their magical power and claim their knowledge. But since the knowledge which the nations possess is unripe, it is destructive. It takes the form of weaponry. Today, it takes the form of nuclear weaponry, biological weaponry. It takes the form of high technology, which dehumanizes human beings which is creating post-humans who have inorganic material 
which is raw chaos, which is matter, which is purely evil, they are planning to impart that and deprive human beings of their soul by replacing their soul with inorganic computer chips. And all of this seems very modern to us, but the Greeks had anticipated all of this in their story of Prometheus, who was cursed for giving mankind the knowledge of fire, and in their story of Atlantis, where the Atlanteans threatened to become gods through their use of science and technology. And that's where the Israelites picked up on all of this. And there were also stories in uh, Samaria, Mesopotamia, and Babylon about this same process, that the gods became angry when human beings became bothersome and sought to usurp the gods, and then they killed them off with the Great Flood. When the Great Flood occurred, Noah was the devil. And just like the devil, Noah replanted a vineyard, a grapevine, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even though Yahweh had nearly completely cleansed the earth with the flood and destroyed all evil, Noah, as Satan, brought it back and planted the vineyard. When he planted the vineyard, he became drunk on his own wine, and his son Ham raped and castrated him. And one of the legends of the oral traditions of Judaism is that Samael is always castrated, which means getting rid of the nations, ending their seed, and taking over their souls and replacing them. And that is also repeated in the story of Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob were the twin children of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was the firstborn, and he represents the nations, the Gentiles. Jacob was the secondborn, and he represents the Jews. It is the mission of the secondborn to steal the blessings and the birthright of the firstborn. In other words, to steal their soul and steal their knowledge. And that is what Jacob did by, um, by replacing, by tricking Esau into giving up his birthright and his blessings for a bowl of red lentil soup. And by tricking Isaac into believing that Jacob was Esau by putting goat skin on his arms because Esau was hairy like a goat. He then uh, tricked Isaac, who was blind, into bestowing Esau's birthright onto Jacob. The firstborn inherit a double portion. And in terms of the story I'm telling, that double portion represents the present world, which is the six days of creation, and the future world, the world to come, Olam Haba, which is the seventh day. So it is chaos which inherits both, because at the end of the cycle, chaos absorbs all the light of creation, and the darkness begins to shine. And it is chaos in the cosmic cycle that ultimately triumphs. So the Israelites anticipated that it would be the nations who would triumph at the end of the 6,000 years. And they had to trick them through Christianity into surrendering their birthright and their blessing in the same sense that Jacob tricked Esau into surrendering his birthright and his blessings. 
Incredible. So where does the world today fit in? You mentioned technology and how the Greeks have seen all of this through their legend or their myth of Prometheus. Where do you factor in the, you know, nation of Israel or like the, the idea of the temple of Solomon into today's, uh, world knowing what you know? Glad you asked. That's a very important aspect of this androgyny. When the first temple of Solomon was destroyed, it destroyed the bedchamber that Yahweh and Shekinah used to sleep in. They used to um, copulate with one another every night in the bedchamber of the temple. And that kept uh, humanity joyous and prevented catastrophes in the world. When the temple was destroyed, Shekinah separated from Yahweh. Excuse me. That was a calamity. That disturbed the balance in the universe. So the temple has to be rebuilt in order to restore that balance. Because when it is rebuilt, Shekinah and Yahweh will reunite as an androgynous being. And at the same time, all of the uh, science and technology which humanity has developed has now enabled the Israelites, literally the people in Israel have developed this technology now, to create artificial wombs and to utilize the skin cells of males as um, egg cells and to utilize male sperm to create new androgynous beings. And they always believed that there were 600,000 truly Jewish soul, uh, Israelite souls, more correctly. It was 600,000 men that Moses took with him in the Exodus, 600,000 Israelite men and their families. And Kabbalah teaches that there are 600,000 souls, and all of those souls are found within Messiah, son of David. So they now have the technology to create 600,000 immortal androgynous uh, beings who will populate Israel in the world to come, and all the rest of humanity has to be eliminated. And robots have to take the place of the nations who were formerly slated to be the slaves. Isaac's blessing on Esau, after he had given Jacob Esau's blessing, uh, Esau said, is there nothing you can bless me with? And his blessing to Esau was to be a slave of his brother Jacob and to serve as his soldier and his slave and a beast of burden working the fields. In the world to come, that evil side, the Sitra Ahra, the evil inclination, has to be purged from the world. So there will no longer be a slave class, but it is knowledge which has become ripe. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has become ripe. And that science and technology can now be utilized to create robots. And robots will replace everyone else. And the objective is to create 600,000 androgynous immortal beings. One of the curses that was placed on Eve was that she should have pains in childbirth. She suffers the birth pangs of giving birth, and she suffers menstruation 
once a month according to the cycles of the moon, which is why the moon is considered part of the womb of chaos, because the moon purges itself once a month on the lunar cycle. So again, getting back to the temple, the idea is that the temple has to be rebuilt so that Yahweh and Shekinah can reunite as the androgynous God that they were originally. And that is why the Bible says that Adam was originally created in the image of the gods, he and she, because the gods were androgynes. They were not either male or female. They were both. And remember that Adam was originally an androgyne, and Yahweh cut Adam in half to create Eve. So Eve is not really a unique being. Eve is the female aspect of Adam. And Adam, after that separation, is the male aspect of Adam. So humanity suffered the same catastrophe that Yahweh and Shekinah suffered in order to establish the balance, the polarity, the commingling of light and darkness so that darkness shines, human beings have to be uh, remade into androgynes. And that is why uh, the flag representing the, um, what is it, LGBTQT movement or TQ movement is a rainbow flag. That is the same rainbow that appeared to Noah when uh, the waters of the flood receded. And God made a covenant with the earth to never again destroy it by flood. That is the restoration of the commingling of light and darkness, the combination of the male and the female. And one of the reasons why I wrote my book is to sound the alarm to humanity that there is this uh, small group of the highest level of Kabbalists, 99.9% .9 of Kabbalists know nothing of what I'm speaking of. But this is uh, very clearly stated in Lurian Kabbalah, in Shabbatayan Kabbalah, and in Frankish Kabbalah. The goal of these people is to um, ensure that the only extant quasi-human beings left on the face of the earth at the end of 6,000 years are 600,000 immortal androgynous beings. And we can see how humanity is being conditioned to accept all of this. Absolutely. Wow. So there are a lot of questions that I had, and you answered a lot of them with the, the last part of your, your amazing points, I must say. Again, a lot of this is very new to me. So you're taking me on a, a whirlwind through history, and I appreciate it. The number that, that sticks out for me uh, in my research into a local area, New Haven, Connecticut, which was built by people who were, um, well, they were Calvinists. So I'd love to know where you place them in this. Um, but they had this idea that comes from the book of Revelations, about 144,000 people, and they built the town green uh, exactly that size, supposedly, to fit 144,000 people. Uh, does this number come from a, you know, 
curse as well? Is it a part of a, a higher plan that's being set upon them? What, how does the New Testament information come into play? I haven't done that much research into 144,000. I have encountered that before. Calvin was part of the Reformation movement, which arose at a time that the Zohar said would be when the gates of wisdom and the fountains of wisdom would be opened in heaven and earth. And that is the time in which um, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil would begin to ripen in the last um, 600 years of the sixth millennium, last 400 years, when the 999 steps of the Messiah began to take place. And the Reformation was part of that process of uh, freeing humanity from the dogmatism of the Catholic Church and of Christianity. It was considered by the Catholic Church very much a Judaizing heresy. And the Reformers were deeply embedded with the Talmudists and the Kabbalists. Martin Luther uh, had many, many well-established friends who were uh, high-ranking Kabbalists, and he was immersed in Talmudic literature and in um, Kabbalistic literature. And many people believe that the uh, reformers were agents of the Kabbalists to open up the gates of wisdom and to free uh, the, the minds of Europe from dogmatic Catholicism and the mythologies of the Catholic Church and of the restrictions of the Thomas, uh, Marcus, of um, Thomas Aquinas, who said that logic could provide us with all truths. And this was contradicted by Bacon and others who said that uh, metaphysics was inferior to science and that science had to rely upon empiricism and experiment to determine what was true or not, or at least to falsify what was false. And the reformers helped to uh, reawaken and set up the Renaissance, which was the rebirth of the ancient knowledge, which existed prior to Christianity. And what they helped to do was strip away the dogmatic power of the Catholic Church. These um, Reformation movements and the Calvinists in England became the Puritans. And the Puritans had a leader who was um, Oliver Cromwell, who helped to instigate the English Revolution. Cromwell became aligned with the Dutch Jews who had been expelled from Spain. And uh, these Dutch Jews bore uh, an especial hatred of the Catholics because of the persecution they faced in Spain. And the English were set upon the Spanish, and the English became then the premier naval power. And after Cromwell and Manasseh ben Israel, um, there was a big push in England to establish a new Amsterdam in um, 
America, which would become the new Jerusalem. And Manasseh ben Israel, who helped to finance the Puritans and to empower them in England as the ultimate form of this Calvinistic and Martin Luther's Reformation, uh, gained the power. And there were many Jews within the Puritan community. And the Puritans uh, adopted almost exclusively Old Testament uh, surnames, not uh, Christian names, which were actually Old, Old Testament names like Jacob. So they brought the Jews over to America. Manasseh ben Israel created the mythology that the native tribes of America and the American Indians were the lost tribes of Israel. And he established the idea that America ought to become the new Jerusalem where the exiled Jews could congregate in a proto-Zionist movement to reformulate the tribe of Judah to ultimately go and take back uh, Palestine from the Ottoman Empire. And many of the reformers wrote books about the being and attributes of God. And almost all of these books talked about the idea that the Jews had to be restored to Israel so that the temple could be rebuilt and so that Jesus would return. So they, be, they created this form of Zionism long before Zionism manifested itself. And they always anticipated since the time of Manasseh ben Israel, at least in the 1600s, that it would be America which would destroy the Ottoman Empire and restore um, the Jews to Palestine. That plan was later took, taken up by uh, the original Zionist, um, Mordecai Manuel Noah, around 1818, gave a series of lectures all the way through to 1844 in which he also said, like Manasseh ben Israel said in, I think, the 1650s or 40s, that the uh, Native American tribes were the lost tribes of Israel, and that um, Jews in America, uh, in New England, I think, or upstate New York, ought to congregate. And he created a Jewish colony to be the proto-Zionist colony. And he said that the navies and the armies of America ought to um, chase the Ottoman Empire out of Palestine and restore the Jews to Israel, and that the Jews ought to prepare for that in these Zionist colonies. And that was Mordecai Manuel Noah. All of that got passed down to Moses Hess, who was a partner with um, Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and instigated the series of communist revolutions across Europe in 1848. And many of the Jews who fled after those revolutions failed came to America seeking sanctuary. His partner, Moses Hess, in the 1860s, uh, wrote a book called Rome and Jerusalem, which was uh, the major push for Zionism. And he said there needed to be a race war between the Germans and the Jews, and that the Germans had to ultimately be destroyed in this race war between Germans and Jews. And that would uh, seed 
the Zionist movement and free the Jews of Europe who were becoming assimilated and integrated into Germany from Germany so that they could uh, move to Palestine and formulate a nation. And that is what eventually become the, became the NSDAP, the Nazi party. Uh, it was Moses Hess who established the tenets of national socialism as a communist movement coming out of the communist manifesto. And it was Moses Hess who proposed this race war between uh, Germans and Jews and established all the doctrines which eventually manifested themselves in that. And it was Mordecai Manuel Noah who, beginning in 1818, established the idea that America could provide um, the resources and the armies which would ultimately uh, fulfill the Zionist project that he created. And that uh, happened during World War I in 1917 when the Belfort Declaration was signed and given to Lord Rothschild by uh, Belfort. The Zionists themselves boasted that the reason that the Belfort Declaration was issued was because President Woodrow Wilson was under blackmail from the uh, Zionist Louis Brandeis, and America was brought into the war on the side of England when uh, Germany was gaining momentum and beginning to win the war in exchange for this Belfort Declaration being uh, granted to, to Lord Rothschild. And this is not what I'm saying. This is what the uh, Zionists openly boasted about. Samuel Lad, uh, Landman and um, several others. And you can find those uh, in my books. So we see that this whole project, which was instigated by Manasseh ben Israel, was ultimately fulfilled in the 20th century. And the nation of Israel was born in the year 1848. And uh, I was the first one to find um, a letter that was written as a response to a Christian preacher by a Hungarian rabbi in 1812. And that letter stated that the name Adam in Hebrew is composed of the letters A-D-M, Hebrew lacks vowels. And this uh, Hungarian rabbi, Joseph Kuhl, stated that that was a coded message, and it was an acronym. The A in the name Adam indeed stood for Adam, but the M stood for Mashiach, or Messiah. And the uh, D stood for David. And since the name Adam is A-D-M, and since there was a period from um, Adam to David, there would be the identical period from David to the Messiah, in other words, to the founding of Israel. And the period from Adam to David in the name Adam was 2,854 years. So he anticipated that the Messiah would arrive, Israel would be founded in the year that would be double that, which was 5,708 on the Hebrew calendar. And that was the year 1948. 
So in 1812, Rabbi Kuhl, who was a prominent Kabbalist, said that the nation of Israel must be founded in the year 1848. There was another very famous Kabbalist in the 1790s known as the Gaon of Vilna, the great genius of Vilnius, Lithuania. He said that the Torah contained a code and that each numbered verse corresponded to a year on the Hebrew calendar. And he said that the year 5708 would be very significant because, well, he didn't say that, but the year 5708 on the Hebrew calendar is 1948 and verse 5708 is verse Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 5, which states that the Jews would return to Israel. So the Kabbalists always anticipated, that's just two of the Kabbalistic prophecies, that Israel must be founded in the year 1948. There is another one, and that is that the verse which says, ye shall return, the word for you shall return is tashuvu. In the Masoretic text where the Bible was the, old, the Torah was translated from the Greek to the Hebrew. They left out the letter Vav. The letter Vav in Hebrew is also the number six, as in six million. Um, it has been pointed out by Rabbi Benjamin Blech that this verse in which the word Teshuvu lacks this Vav was noted in the Zohar and was said to be a very significant verse, but the reason why was not given. When it, the word Tashuvu lacks this six, it adds up to the number five, to the number 708. Since the Jews had to return in the sixth millennium, it was always understood that that number represented the number 5,708. So that was the third Kabbalistic prophecy that Israel would have to be founded in the year 1948. And Rabbi Benjamin Blech, who is an expert on Hebrew gematria, said exactly that. And he said that it lacked the six because they would return minus six million Jews. Wow. And that, yeah, that's, that's where we're at right now. This is... Uh... Very controversial topic. I think a lot of people will be interested in checking out your numerous books on that subject. But maybe note the, the fact that the year 1948 is very close to the year 2000. Hmm. And um, this last 400-year period where the gates of the fountain, gates and fountains of wisdom are opened up is known as Heflei, sorry, Hevlei Mashiach, which means the birth pangs of the Messiah. And when a woman gives birth, her contractions become more frequent and more severe. And that is what the Kabbalists anticipated would always happen as the year 6000 approaches. The calamities would become ever more frequent and ever more devastating. And the term for that is the birth pangs of the Messiah.
And that's the year. They also anticipated that there would be 10 plagues on humanity, like the 10 plagues of Egypt. And they anticipated that there would be climate change. There would be, the earth would become incredibly hot, as you have been enduring recently. That there would be uh, diseases, earthquakes. And one of the plagues related to um, Zechariah, I think it's chapter 14 or 13, where it talks about something very much resembling nuclear bombs. So many of the Kabbalists anticipate that one of the birth pangs of the messianic age will be nuclear war. And there have been Kabbalistic books uh, discussing this. And in those Kabbalistic books, I believe it was Rabbi uh, Mandelbaum or something like that. He wrote that uh, the Kabbalists always knew that there would be three world wars because uh, there was a prophecy that the war of Gog and Magog would exist in three parts. And there were uh, rabbis involved in the Chabad Lubavitch movement who after World War I said that World War I was only the initial war in this three-part war of the wars of Gog and Magog that uh, 20 years after he said this around 1925, uh, there would be a second world war and again, the birth pangs become increasingly frequent and increasingly calamitous, and that this second world war would be even more devastating. And he said, but that wouldn't be the end, that after that, there would be an absolutely devastating third world war. So that is uh, their prophecy and the premise under which they operate, that there will be a third world war, and the Kabbalists actively debate what form this world war will take. And some of them believe that it will be a war of pestilence and plagues. And others believe it will be, and which would effectively be biological warfare. And others believe that it will take the form of 10 plagues, as many um, medieval Kabbalistic texts anticipated. And others uh, state that it will be a nuclear war, others a conventional war. But the general consensus is that um, Jesus is Satan in Kabbalah. He is called Satan in Kabbalah. And that he will return as the advocate for the Jews and will eliminate the heathen nations, as was always the plan, according to Kabbalah and according to the Apocalypse of Abraham and the Gospel of Judas. The Apocalypse of Abraham was written at the same time that the Gospel of Mark, the first Gospel, was written. And it stated uh, that Jesus was sent among the nations to seduce them and tempt them, which is the role of Satan, into worshiping this idol Jesus, and that he would ultimately return and destroy all of them and destroy all Messianic Jews who had converted to Christianity. And that that would be a cleansing process, which would remove the bad seed of the mixed multitude, which had entered into the Israelite tribes when Moses uh, undertook the exodus and many Egyptians took flight together with the Israelites. And they believed that Jesus would serve this useful purpose of weeding out all of those who uh, converted to Christianity. And one of the themes of the New Testament is that um, 
the Pharisees and the uh, mobs of Judahites who surrounded Jesus said that he was Beelzebub, that he was Satan, and that he was possessed by Satan, and that he had come to tempt them into idolatry. <clears throat> so it's clear that the authors of the Gospels understood all of this and encoded it into the Gospels. But the Apocalypse of Abraham, which was written at exactly the same time, uh, didn't hide anything. It stated exactly that, that even Satan worshipped Jesus because he was so evil. And Satan kissed Jesus and embraced Jesus. And that it was uh, Jesus who would be sacrificed to Satan <clears throat> in order to relieve Israel of all of its sins and take on all the inequities of Israel. So Jesus is the scapegoat. And in the oral tradition, the scapegoat is given to Satan to pay the ransom for Adam's sin and to pay the ransom for the sins of humanity. And the Christians had the same doctrine very early on. One of the early church fathers named Origen created something that came to be called the ransom theory of atonement. And it expressly stated that Jesus was not sacrificed to Yahweh. Instead, Jesus was given to Satan to pay the debts of humanity as an act of justice because these debts are owed to Satan. But the uh, Zohar clarifies the fact that when the goat was given to Satan, and Satan is the guardian angel of the nations, not the Israelites. Yahweh is the guardian angel of the Israelites, the God of Israel, and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Esau is the child of Satan and Eve through Cain. And Esau is Satan's lot. So Satan is the guardian angel of Esau. And the angel that Jacob wrestled with was Satan. And when uh, Jacob defeated Satan, Satan betrayed his children, the Gentiles, the nations, and gave um, Jacob their blessing and renamed Jacob Israel. So the Zohar clarifies the fact that there were two scapegoats on the day of Yom Kippur, just as there were two twins, Esau and Jacob. Both of these uh, goats represent Jesus, but one of these goats was sacrificed in the temple. The other goat was carried off into the wilderness to be given to Satan. And the Zohar explains that the reason that this was done was because Satan existed in the astral plane between the earth and the moon, which is Satan's kingdom. And Satan tries to intercept all the prayers of the Jews and of humanity and interferes with all their sacrificial offerings and tries to absorb the energy and the mag magical powers of those prayers and sacrifices. So Satan has to be distracted on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, so that he doesn't interfere with the sacrifice of the goat in the temple. And that is accomplished by taking the other goat and bringing it into the wilderness. The wilderness is Satan's mansion. And that goat is pushed off a cliff, and it is given to Satan. 
When Satan is given this gift of a goat, he becomes confused. And one of the roles of Satan is to be the accuser and prosecutor in the heavenly court. And on the Day of Atonement, the people of Israel are put on trial in the heavenly court. And since it is Satan who is the one who tempts the Israelites to sin and commit idolatry, it is Satan who is the accuser and the witness, because he is always there when they sin. So they have to confuse the accuser so that he doesn't accuse the Israelites on the Day of Atonement. So they give him this gift because they believe that giving someone a gift confuses them to make them believe that you are their friend. So Satan, who is the guardian angel of the Gentiles and is duty-bound to protect and defend them in the heavenly court, flips when he's given this goat. And he becomes the advocate of Israel in the heavenly court. And scapegoats, that's where the term scapegoat comes from, scapegoats the Gentiles for all the sins of the Israelites. And this is not a theory that I've come up with. This is expressly stated in the Zohar very clearly. There's no denying it. It's not controversial. It's widely acknowledged. Jesus does exactly the same thing. He is the scapegoat. So when he dies and is given as a ransom to Satan, what he is doing is transferring the sins of Israel onto the nations, onto the Gentiles. And in the biblical story, he specifically says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, which is Satan's role on the Day of Atonement to flip from being the prosecutor of Israel to becoming the advocate of Israel. Now, you mentioned the Kabbalists before. Which groups are they using to push this plan forward? And how, you know, how can we understand from the past to see what's coming? Because we, we mentioned, you know, war, possibly the big World War III, we're on the precipice of that. That could be uh, the end of this Iron Age, so to speak. What, uh, what about... Uh, it's so good you mentioned Iron Age. That relates to the, um, well, how? the theory of the Greeks that they're... All right, I'm sorry for your... No, it's okay. Tell, tell uh, us how. I'm so enthusiastic about these ideas, and you're asking exactly the right questions, because that's the whole point of investigating this, is to find out where this is heading and headed off. So please allow me to let you finish your question without interrupting. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. You, I think you got down to the question in a way that was better than I could have put it, and I appreciate that you think I'm asking good questions here, because this is... Like I said in the beginning, and maybe I don't need to make a disclaimer for myself, but very new territory. I'm very interested, but uh, unequipped to <laughs> to ask as deep of questions as I'd like. But hey, that's learning, right? So, yeah, please explain maybe to us the significance. Again, you could have a guest representing the point of view of the Kabbalists, and we could openly discuss this and hash it out. And uh, that would be a good Socratic way of moving this forward. I would be interested asked, in that. Yeah. That would be wonderful. I think it would draw tremendous attention. Maybe you can get Rabbi Tovia Singer or someone really learned like that, who is a staunch defender 
of the Jewish position and defender of um, Kabbalism and the oral tradition of Judaism, and we can uh, we can discuss it. Um, what I am seeing is that Vladimir Putin identified himself with Peter the Great in the Orthodox. Uh, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox tradition, Peter the Great was always called by the old believers the Antichrist. So when Putin was likening himself to Peter the Great, to those in the know, he was claiming the throne of the Antichrist. In the Schofield Bible, and again in this Protestant literature, which appeared from the 1500s on, and especially beginning in the 1700s, the Russian czar, most uh, significantly Peter the Great, was identified as the Antichrist. And Russia was called Gog and Magog. And in Judaism, Gog and Magog is the end times war. Uh, the book of Revelation says it's post-millennial. But most of the Protestants came to interpret it as being the, the Battle of Armageddon is part of the War of Gog and Magog, according to them, not according to strict scriptural interpretation, but I digress. So what they are setting up is for Russia to play the role of Gog and Magog and align with Persia, which is Iran today, and with Turkey, which I think was Gomer or something, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, it spells out how the end times battle of Gog and Magog will unfold. And in the Schofield Bible, and again in all of this Protestant literature, talking about the being and attributes of God and establishing proto-Zionism and the restoration of the Jews to Israel and the return of Christ, much of it identified either the Pope of Rome or the Russian Tsar as the Antichrist. And we now see the Pope of Rome meeting with the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church and creating an ecumenical universal church between the two. So those two forces, which were identified as the Protestants, as the Antichrist, are uniting and Rome and uh, Ukraine plays a big part in it, uh, and Russia are forming together to form what was considered uh, by the Jews to be Gog and Magog, and by the Protestants to be the Antichrist. And Vladimir Putin has close connections with a very old um, Hasidic movement known as Chabad Lubavitch, which was founded uh, by Rebbe Schnur Solomon, who was a very important Kabbalist who paid particular attention to the Kabbalah of Isaac Luria, who is known as the Ari or the Aritzal. Luria's book, Luria never wrote anything, but he had a student named Chaim Vital who recorded his, um, his beliefs. One of those is Etz Chaim, the Tree of Life. Another one is um, Gate of Reincarnations. And this had a profound effect on the founder of Chabad Lubavitch, Shnur Salman. And he wrote a book called The Tanya. 
And that became essentially the Kabbalistic Bible of Chabad Lubavitch. And I believe that um, Chabad Lubavitch is also um, connected to the Trump family through Jared Kushner, who is a Chabadnik. Vladimir Putin is connected to Chabad through um, a rabbi named Barel Lazar. Putin was put into power by a, a Jewish man who had converted to Christianity named Berezhovsky. But Berezhovsky was close to some fellow uh, oligarchs, one of whom was a man named Guzinski, who um, I think it was called the uh, World Jewish Conference, headed that. And that was opposed to Chabad Lubavitch. And that previously had controlled um, Jewry in Russia and was the preeminent religious force in Russia. Putin then turned on Berezhovsky and Kaczynski and aligned himself with the oligarch Roman Abramovich and several other uh, oligarchs, Lev Lubayev, uh, his childhood friends, the Rotenbergs. Um, all of these people, Putin grew up uh, with Hasidic Jews who essentially raised him and were very kind to him and took him in uh, because he wasn't that close to his family. So he was always surrounded by these um, Chabad, Lubavitch, Haredi, Hasidic Jews who pursued this Lurian Kabbalah through the Tanya. They believed that there would be seven Rebbe's, and there were seven Rebbe's. The final Rebbe was Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Many of the Chabadniks believe that that Rebbe was the Messiah and that his soul still exists and that he will become um, Messiah, son of David, and uh, take over when Messiah, son of Joseph, who is the Christ returned as the Antichrist, destroys Edom, which is Western civilization. Putin has a political guru named Alexander Dugan. Alexander Dugan created a movement called National Bolshevism, modeled after National Socialism, Nazism. And his mission was likewise to destroy the West. The West has always been associated with Edom, with Esau, with uh, the chaos that has to be eliminated in order to purify the world. So Russia is becoming and has always been planned to be Gog and Magog and to align with Iran and with Turkey to destroy Edom, which is the West. So I believe what they are trying to do is stage this conflict, utilizing Vladimir Putin and Russia and communist China to instigate a nuclear war, which will be devastating to humanity, and which will artificially fulfill all of these prophecies. So one of the things that I'm trying to warn people against is that the Russians are utilizing massive psychological warfare to manipulate the mentality of the Christian right in America to favor Putin and to welcome this nuclear war, which they have been planning uh, behind the scenes for 2,500 years. And I hope that none of this is put on Jewish people generally, because most Jewish people would absolutely oppose all of this, as would every sane human being. 
and have opposed it and have been some of the loudest voices opposing it. This is instead a specific set of religious fanatics who throughout the course of history have caused tremendous harm, the greatest harm to Jewish people throughout the course of all of uh, Jewish history. It has been those who have followed this um, oral tradition stolen from Platonic philosophy, which have done the greatest harm to Jewry, um, especially Bar Kokhba, who pretended to be the Messiah, son of David, early on instigated a war with the Romans that was terribly costly to Jewry. And Shabbatai Tsevi, who pretended to be Messiah, son of David, led Jewry into tremendous disappointment and calamity. So I want to warn everyone, every good-minded uh, person, that I believe this is what is being planned. And I welcome anyone. I don't want internet trolls to debate me, but anyone serious who understands this history and wants to take the opposing side, we can discuss it. And maybe you can get someone from Chabad. Um, there are several very prominent figures. Perhaps you can look into it through your connections and see what you can turn up. And we can discuss this because I believe I can fairly represent the opposing point of view. And I need someone who can fairly represent and defend their point of view. And uh, I think we can reveal a lot of things to the general public that they have no awareness of whatsoever. So I think the plan is to instigate either biological warfare and or nuclear warfare and or conventional warfare, um, stage the war of Gog and Magog, draw the West, draw America and Europe and Christendom, who are referred to as Edom in the Kabbalistic literature, into self-consuming wars, primarily with communist nations and with Islam. And this was discussed in the 700s, immediately after Islam appeared in the 600s. There are uh, Jewish texts. Uh, um, Kabbalah didn't exist yet, but following up on the Midrash and on the Talmud, there were texts which said that Christendom represented the Leviathan, the serpent of chaos, and Islam represented the behemoth that um, giant ox which appears together with the Leviathan in the book of Job and is another monstrous force. And the plan was that the Leviathan and the behemoth would fight one another and kill each other in this battle. And that would leave the Jews standing as the sole heirs to inherit the earth. And at this point, there would be a great festival celebrating the arrival of the Messianic age, and they would feast upon the Leviathan, which is Jesus Christ, and upon the behemoth, which is the prophet Muhammad and Islam, and they would eat them in a feast. And then they would finally be permitted to enjoy drinking wine at this banquet. And Jesus spoke of this banquet as the wedding banquet. And they would be able to then consume Jesus because he would become kosher. His flesh would become kosher because the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would become ripe. And there is a whole messianic movement of Jews today 
who are saying the exact same things I'm saying, as strange as this must appear to you if you look into it, you will find that there are prominent rabbis who are associated with Chabad who are saying that Jesus Christ should be put on trial and again be brought back into the fold because Cain was not only the son of the devil, he was the son of Eve. So he has a dual nature. And Jesus inherited the soul of Cain through Esau. Esau was also the son of Isaac and is the brother of Jacob. So they want to restore Jesus from what Shabbatai Tzevi and his mentor Nathan of Gaza called the prison of the Gentiles. They want to rescue Jesus from the world of the Kelipot, the shells of darkness, and restore him to the Jewish people and make him their advocate. Remember that Satan becomes the advocate when given the scapegoat. Jesus was the scapegoat. He was given to Satan. And now he is to return as the Antichrist and become the advocate of Jewry battling against Christians. And there are very prominent rabbis. Rabbi Kaduri said that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was involved with Chabad and was the preeminent Kabbalistic scholar in Israel. And the reason I'd like to talk to Rabbi Tovia Singer about this is um, before Rabbi Kaduri died, he left an, a coded note which created an acronym which signified the fact that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and had to be redeemed by the Jewish people. You may recall that I initially said that the um, pre-Judaist Canaanites used to sacrifice their firstborn in the ovens of Moloch. The Jews got rid of that practice, but they maintained the idea that the firstborn had to be redeemed because they are evil, because they are chaos, the firstborn. They are redeemed by... Um, the Jewish father gives five silver temple shekels to a Kohen, uh, to the um, descendants of the priestly class, and that redeems the child. So instead of having to pass the child through the fire and give it to Moloch, they instead redeem it with silver. And there are rabbis today in Israel who want to collect $2 million worth of silver shekels to redeem the firstborn child who has the soul of firstborn Cain, the soul of firstborn Esau, with $2 million in silver shekels to redeem him to Israel so that Jesus becomes the advocate of Jewry, ceases to be the Christ of the Gentile, and instead becomes the Antichrist, an anti-Christian force, which will eliminate the Gentiles. So I want to warn uh, Christian Zionists and Messianic Jews that this has always been the plan, and this plan is coming to fruition. And if you would like, I can uh, come back and provide you with the names of all these rabbis and the proof. I'll, uh, I'll send you an email with some of the articles detailing this. I can give you YouTube videos where they discuss this with um, prominent uh, Christian uh, pastors, televangelists in America, so that you'll know that uh, what I'm saying is correct. 
Or if you believe it's incorrect, you can show me where you think it's incorrect. If I may, can we go through some of the slides that I've prepared? Absolutely. Absolutely. These are depictions of John. John was the homosexual lover of Jesus. He was the most beloved of Jesus. And that is not my theory. That was the theory of Marlowe, who was persecuted for pointing out that. But there was an ancient festival in which they claimed that John chased the evil out of a poison cup of wine that he was given. In, um, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 15 through 38, it talks about the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath is the poisonous wine that God puts in the chalice to kill off uh, the enemies of Israel. Jesus is the Eucharist, the wine that is poured into the Holy Grail, is the poisonous, unripe wine of the tree of knowledge, the Gnosis, that is given to the Gentiles in order to poison them and kill them off. And that is the significance of the Eucharist, is that the Gentiles are being fed the uh, unripe fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the form of Jesus's blood, which is wine from the grapevine of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Many uh, Christian portraits and etchings depict this fact that Jesus is the grapevine, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is the serpent hanging on that tree, tempting humanity with knowledge, with gnosis, which uh, they are led to believe will, will grant them immortality through the use of ripened knowledge. And Jesus, again, is the god Shesmu, who treads the winepress and extracts the blood of the grape in order to feed it to Israel and to Yahweh so that they can absorb the magical powers of the higher soul of Yehida. And this is a very prominent theme in Christian art. But Christians are unaware of the fact that the grapevine signifies the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is the devil serpent on that tree. But the early Gnostics were very much aware of it. And the Naasin and Ophite Gnostics and the Cainite Gnostics all openly said that Jesus is the serpent on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's another character in the Hashtun who is also that. In the, the occultists are very much aware of this fact, and they portray Jesus as being hanging on the cross, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is a grapevine, and Jesus is the serpent. Again, you can see Jesus as the demonic god, Shesmu, treading on the bunches of grapes. In Egyptian art, there would be a very similar depiction, but these grapes, each grape in the bunch would be a human head. So it was very clear to the Egyptians that was what was being portrayed was the human heads being, um, they weren't uh, necessarily stomped on. The Egyptians would use a big canvas bag and twist it to extract the grape juice. But it's the same theory. Again, these are simply depictions of Jesus treading the wine press. You can see that his blood pours out as the 
the juice of the grapes, which is then gathered in the cup of God's wrath, which is the Holy Grail from which the Eucharist is offered. And in the Gospel of Judas, it expressly states that the disciples existed as deceivers to go among the nations and deceive the nations, and that ultimately Jesus, who is Satan, would come and smite and destroy all of the Christians and all of the Jews who had been tempted to the idolatry of Christianity. It's actually the Jews who convert to Christianity will be tortured. According to this um, apocalyptic literature, they will suffer worse than anyone. And um, Rabbi Tobia Singer has been a strong opponent of the messianic movement. And I think they're even in the Gospels, the original Jews who surrounded Jesus were strong opponents of Jews becoming Christians because they fully understood in the Gospels, those Jews understood that Jesus was the devil and he was tempting them to engage in idolatrous worship. And that if they succumbed to that temptation, they would be uh, tortured and then murdered. Um, this is, um, there were a number of Christian Kabbalists who emerged in the Renaissance. One of the chief Christian Kabbalists was Pico della Mirandola. And one of the uh, most important things to understand in Kabbalah is that Yahweh's name is very significant. And Yahweh's name is yod heh vav -Heh. And again, there are no uh, vowels in Hebrew, so no one today knows the correct pronunciation. And um, it has been pronounced Jehovah, it has been pronounced Yahweh, etc. But to give the correct pronunciation is supposed to uh, entail releasing tremendous cosmic supernatural forces. So the Jews don't even, Orthodox Jews don't even write God's name, G-O-D. Instead, they write uh, G hyphen D. And they don't pronounce or attempt to pronounce Yahweh's name. It's forbidden. They got that from the Greeks. It was forbidden to pronounce Zeus's name. So they refer to him as Hashem or Adonai or many of his other names, but never as Yahweh. And those four letters are called the Tetragrammaton, and they're supposed to have magical powers, and each one of those letters represents many things that correspond to the four worlds and um, levels of the soul, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this uh, Christian Kabbalist, Pico della Mirandola, created the idea that Jesus's name was actually Yahshua, which puts a shin in the middle of the name yod heh vav -Hey Yahweh and makes it Yeshua. And Shin represents Shekinah. So Jesus becomes the androgynous Adam and Eve as Yahweh combined with Shekinah to become the pentagrammaton. And you can see that the pentagram represents evil and represents the devil. And the fruit in the Garden of Eden uh, was considered by Christians to be an apple or a pomegranate, 
And when you cut an apple or a pomegranate in the seed in half, the uh, seeds form a pentagram. And the Romans had the word malum for apple, and mal is evil. And they considered apples evil because of this fact that when you cut them in half, the seeds form into a pentagram. When you invert that pentagram, you create the androgyne of Satan. His male aspect is Samael, and her female aspect is Lilith. And the uh, pentagram of Satan is composed of the Hebrew letters Lamas Fad Yod Tav Nun, which spells Leviathan. So the Christian Kabbalists also acknowledge the fact that when the pentagram points up as Adam and Eve, as Jesus, it represents the good aspect of Jesus. Again, Jesus has a dual nature. And when it points down, it represents the evil aspect of Jesus, which is Satan. The original Gnostics had the same concept in Abraxas, who had legs like a serpent, like the Greek god Typhon. And um, Mirandola said that Samael is Typhon. One of the legs represents the serpent of light, and the other leg represents the serpent of darkness. And together they form the androgynous body and soul of the twin messiahs. Um, it might be a bit too much to go in the concept of as above, so below. But the Star of David, this, the uh, triangle pointing up, represents the light and the male phallus penetrating the womb of the star, the uh, triangle pointing down, which represents the earth, Shekinah, and the bottommost Sephirah on the tree of life, which is Malchut, which means the kingdom which represents the earth and chaos. And uh, the letter Aleph represents those three serpents, the serpent above of light, the serpent above below of evil and darkness, and the two unified as um, the unified serpents, which you see in the caduceus with two serpents wrapped around a central staff. And again, in the pentagram pointing up and down, you see the principle of as above as the man and as below as the woman or the woman. This concept of as above and so below relates also to that temple you were talking about. Hmm. There is a heavenly temple of Yahweh and there is an earthly temple of Yahweh. The earthly temple of Yahweh has to transcend across the seven planets to the fixed stars, cross the abyss of the fixed stars, and reunite with the temple of God. So part of the reunification of Yahweh and Shekinah and humanity becoming androgynous is the reunification of the earth with heaven and the earthly temple with the heavenly temple, so that it is as above, so below. Uh, Jesus Christ is patterned after the Greek Orphic God, Phanes, Protogenes. Phanes means light bringer. Protogenes means first begotten. Jesus was referred to in the book of John as light bringer, first begotten. Uh, Phanes is the androgynous son of the gods. He was both male and female. He has a serpent wrapped around him, 
Again, he is the creator God, the Demiurge, who is represented by Jesus and by Adam Kadmon in um, Kabbalah. And he is the Logos, and it was Philo Eudeus who said that the Logos is a part of Judaism, and it becomes a strong part of Christianity in the book of John and in the Apocryphon of John in the Gnostic literature. In the Apocryphon of John, it specifically states that Jesus was uh, the one who gave the knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve. But what they call the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the epinoia, epinoia means insight, of the light, they stayed in front of it in order that he, Adam, might not look up to his fullness and recognize the nakedness of his shamefulness. But it was I, that means Jesus Christ, who brought about that they ate. So that means, uh, that's specifically stating that it was Jesus Christ who was uh, the serpent who gave the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to Adam and Eve. There is an opposing God to Phanes in the Mithraic um, mystery religions of ancient Rome, and that is the god Aramanius. Aramanius represents the Kakodizen Yahweh, the evil god who has to be worshipped and given sacrifices so that he does no harm. Um, the whole concept of the Garden of Eden is plagiarized from the Greek Garden of Hesperides. This is Hercules sitting beneath an apple tree with a serpent in it. This existed before the Torah was written, and the Garden of Eden is copied from it. Uh, I don't think we have time to get into the rest of that. I created this slide uh, to graphically depict the fact that Jesus on the cross is identical to the serpent on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent offers gnosis, knowledge, in the form of the fruits of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to male and to female and male. Jesus offers the same gnosis to female and male. The imagery is identical, and it was represented that way and fully understood by the Gnostics to represent exactly what I'm showing by superimposing the crucifixion onto the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Phanes was hatched from a cosmic egg. The cosmic egg is surrounded by the serpent of Nyx, his female aspect, which is um, Tohu Vavohu Koshech, the uh, chaos, emptiness, and darkness. When the light enters the womb of that chaos, emptiness, and darkness, creation is produced as the androgynous commingling of good and evil just as it is in yin and yang. Uh, this is an article on Shesmo. If people want to pause the video, they can read it. Um, this uh, Too much to get into. These are the twin trees, the tree of life and the tree of death, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can see that together they form one combined tree and that the world is presently upside down. The tree of life is on top, shining in the daylight, and the tree of knowledge 
is underground, but it is meant to be on top when the darkness shines. So eventually these two trees will exchange places and the tree of life will be buried in the darkness. And it is the tree of death, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which will stand in the shining darkness. This is the ancient Canaanite and Phoenician practice of offering up the firstborn son to the bull god Moloch. There is a furnace inside of Moloch. You can see the flames and the children would be burned up and their faces would contort when they were fried and form a smile. So it was uh, called the divine laughter. And again, that practice was carried on. It was carried on in the temple, which is why the temple had to be destroyed, the second temple. And I have proof of that in my books. I don't think I'll go through showing the parallels. If people want to read this, this is excerpts from the Gospel of Judas, which points out the fact that Jesus's 12 disciples were meant to deceive and become the slaughterers of Christians, and that Christ is in fact the Antichrist who will return and kill all of the Christians. Uh, this is a graphic I made to show that Jesus is the grapevine on the fig tree of the tree of knowledge. This gets into Neoplatonic philosophy. I think we've covered enough. Uh, this is from 3rd Baruch, which proves that Satan planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, and that that tree was a grapevine. And Jesus is that grapevine. His blood is uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that gives gnosis, that gives knowledge to mankind. And this is uh, absolute proof of that fact. The same thing about the tree of knowledge of good and evil being a grapevine is stated in the Apocalypse of Abraham, which again was written at the same time as the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this relates to the prophecy of the Messiah, son of Joseph, treading the winepress, and the winepress and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments. The winepress, the wine fat, uh, gives off its blood, which means exterminating uh, the Edomites, who are the Christians, who are the West, America, and people of European descent. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled on my garments, and I will stain all my raiment, raiment is clothing. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, 
and will make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth. So Jesus Christ, treading that wine press, is not your friend. He is the mass murderer, foretold in the day of vengeance of Isaiah chapter 63 in the Old Testament, who will come to kill all Christians. And in Revelation chapter 14, the vision of Armageddon identifies Jesus as that man who treads the winepress and kills off all of the non-Israelite nations. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read. Um, let's start with 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle, like the angel of death. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horse bridles, by the space of 6,600 furlongs. So the ocean of blood that Christ will spill will be so deep it will reach to the bridle of a horse's neck. And then in um, Revelation chapter 19, I believe, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God is the Logos, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wore a red robe to signify the fact that he was drenched in the blood of the Christian. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that with it he should smite the nations. The nations are the Gentiles, the uh, the Goyim means nations, and it represents Edom, the Christians. And shall should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he shall treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath his vesture, he hath on his vesture, and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That again represents Jesus Christ as the God Shesmu treading the winepress and extracting the blood of the nations. Uh, that's too much to go into. I guess we pretty much covered it. There's a lot there. Yeah. Wow. I, <laughs> I was There's surprised. There's a great that... deal more in my books. And I suggest that people go to my website, cjbbooks.com and check it out. If they find this interesting. Yeah. Um, you will see that what I'm saying, I have uh, citations for everything that I say, and it is not controversial, which is why no major authorities have stepped up to contradict what I've been saying for years now, because everything I say is fully um, cited. Understood. 
Now, but I understand the fact that new facts can be presented. People can have disagreements. I'm not trying to create a dogma. And if anyone who uh, has the ability and is recognized as an authority wants to dispute it, I would uh, very much welcome the opportunity to discuss it with them. Yeah, I would. I would not be the person to challenge it. I'm just sitting here fascinated. And yeah, if we could find someone that maybe someone that you suggested, that would be maybe not the right fit for this show, but definitely a show that I can arrange. This is tremendously fascinating to me. Again, a lot of it is out of my realm of immediate knowledge, but I'm wondering when it comes to this movement of scientific atheism or scientism do you see that as this swapping out going on where yahweh would be uh the egregore of yahweh would be forgotten and killed and replaced with something that would make these people like gods is that scientism is that science this university academic consensus which has a lot of social Marxist communist elements to it as well. Do you see that as this, you know, preeminent force that's bringing on this new age? In a sense, yes, but they are being directed to do so by higher powers. Mm. And the way that the Kabbalists have explained it, and they have explained it, is that the people you describe tend the garden. They are the gardeners of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they will only be able to do so until the point at which the fruit becomes ripe. The sign that the fruit is ripe is that the knowledge is being used to destroy Edom in the battle of Gog and Magog, so that all of this uh, knowledge which the gardeners have tended by creating the knowledge um, it will be used for destructive purposes, but then uh, the poison will become the cure because after that point, the knowledge will become so sophisticated that it will be able to undo all of the damage that the knowledge itself has caused. They will find ways of cleansing the earth of uh, the toxins that this knowledge produced. They will find ways of replenishing the natural um, life on the earth, which was also the prophecies of Isaiah, where the animals will be restored in a new form and genetically modified organisms, which will be produced. One of the prophecies will that be that there will eventually be what we would consider genetically modified organisms. And uh, this was stated in um, the books of Baruch and in the Talmud, that once knowledge had become ripe, uh, there would be gardens where one grape would produce enormous caskets of wine, where one bushel of wheat would come from one plant enough to feed a city. All of these tremendous things which are being brought about by knowledge when it becomes ripe. So the class of people, uh, you so astutely point out that exists, that is directing us towards destruction, is also perfecting knowledge, tending the garden, and ripening the fruit, where knowledge will ultimately be enable the survivors 
to rectify the world and undo all the damage that the unripe knowledge created so that we have these same people providing the funding to these forces which are directing us to post-genderism, to uh, transhumanism, to post-humanism, to critical race theory. There are many common sources of funding for all this. And what that signifies to the Kabbalists is maintaining this class of gardeners who tend the tree of knowledge. But those people are certainly not at the top, the apex of the pyramid of the hierarchy of power. They are instead um, being given a moral code which inspires them to believe that they are virtue signaling by developing the technologies for androgyny, by developing the technologies which enable the conversion of skin cells into sperm cells, by developing the technology which will allow gay men to reproduce by utilizing their own uh, egg cells generated from their uh, skin cells to mingle together with their sperm so that homosexuals will enjoy the same rights, not rights, but the same abilities of procreation as anyone else. And all of this uh, has a long history in alchemy and in Kabbalah of converting matter into life, of animating life into the homunculi and into the golem by taking the clay the same way that Prometheus did and animating it with life so that each of these uh, top Kabbalists who will reproduce as one of the 600,000 immortal androgynous beings will become gods like Prometheus, able to grab the clay, animate it, and make life. And that is also part of the process that they're celebrating, that they believe that they have become better than the gods because the gods took organic material and made life. And they now have surpassed the gods by taking inorganic matter, silicon, and animating it. And by animating it, they have created artificial intelligence. So they believe that they have now surpassed Yahweh and become superior gods to Yahweh. So it is now time to disbelieve in Yahweh and start worshiping these uh, supermen who have gained the ability to impose their will on chaos. Hmm. And the um, magical power that gods have to simply create things by willing them into existence has now become a power of the intelligence of these men. And they do specify men because they believe that men represent good and females are evil. And therefore, females have to become more masculine in order to be grafted into the androgynous tree. Now, they call this AI Lambda. Is there any uh, symbolic significance to that? I don't know. That's a good question. I should look into that. And uh, uh, is the first letter and logos. I don't know if it has any relation to that or not. Mm. Well, it's also the 11th letter of the Greek alphabet, and we know that numbers and letters are interchangeable in this geometric way. And some people have even suggested that the nuclear tests that were done at the Trinity site were homunculi or golem that were 
exploded in just a specific spot on the 33rd parallel of latitude for a sort of alchemical process to be spurred, right? To, to maybe connect with these forces of chaos and darkness and bring them in, shine their light on the in Southwest and beyond. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the Gollum correspondence is very strong because the Gollum was raised from chaos to become an animate being and the defender of the Israelites to smite uh, the forces. So again, um, it's like the serpent Nahushtun. The serpent is raised to uh, fight the enemies of Israel and the poison becomes the cure. So chaos is raised as the golem to battle against chaos and to eliminate Edom. And I'm sure that uh, those people who were involved in the Manhattan Project, Oppenheim and the others were aware of the Kabbalistic significance of what they were doing. And you point out a beautiful idea that had not occurred to me, this release of uh, the energy of an atomic bomb is the darkness shining. That is the Vril force that Biden uh, talked about in his book on the Vril, that this idea that chaos has absorbed the energy of the daylight and now has tremendous power, the power of E equals MC squared, which is unleashed in a nuclear detonation. So I agree with that. Um, I don't see how it would well, it does correspond to the homiculi in, in the sense of animating uh, chaotic. Matter. They were quoted as saying it was the first time that the sun had risen in the West. So it was, it was exploded, it was I think. The dawn of a new era is what they're saying. Mm. The Egyptians believed that every dawn was creation being reenacted. And um, the Talmud uh, adopted that and the Kabbalists adopted that idea. And that every night there's a battle between the forces of chaos to reestablish creation. And that represents the cosmic cycle. You have the dawn and eventually slowly the darkness overtakes it and absorbs all of that light represented by the full moon. And that is the darkness shining. But traditionally that would then, uh, the Stoics said that at that point there would then be a universal conflagration and the entire universe would burn and that would cleanse it. And then the chaos would be a blank slate and a perfect substratum for a new creation. And Phanes Protogenes, who uh, would destroy the earth, would destroy the universe with that conflagration, would then return as a new cosmic egg that would burst. And the Big Bang Theory was expressly based on the cosmic egg of Phanes Protogenes would burst out this light that would create a new golden age that would give way to a silver age that would give way to the age of heroes, then the bronze age, and finally the absolutely corrupt iron age in which children would uh, slay their parents and brother would be against brother. And then that would then uh, generate the conflagration that would create a new cosmic cycle. But um, the Kabbalists want to break that cycle. And they believe they can break that cycle by eliminating the nations. And then there will be no new golden age because creation will be in their hands and they will become eternal. They will be immortal. And that will be the triumph 
of Satan. That will be the triumph of chaos. That will be the new type of light, the light of darkness. And the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 1, talks about a fourth day, and that is the, the time that the light of darkness emerges. And um, the menorah has an eighth candle. That eighth candle represents the darkness shining after the seven days of creation. So their goal is to end the cosmic cycle with a victory of chaos. And they want to steal the soul of the firstborn so they inherit that double portion that the firstborn of chaos are slated to inherit. So they have to eliminate Edom and the nations and all other peoples prior to this conflagration. And the conflagration might well take the form of atomic bombs. And that would be exactly what the Stoics had predicted as the end of the cosmic cycle. But they don't then anticipate a new golden age. They like the idea of silver. Silver is the color of the shining moon. Gold is the color of the sun. You'll notice in the temple rituals, they utilized silver shekels, not gold, because they want chaos to win. And then they want to break the cosmic cycle so that the total freedom of chaos exists forever. And they are the masters of chaos. And simply by imagining things with their will, they can create reality. And everything that they forget not only will be forgotten, but will never have existed. They have this um, subjective idealism, like the philosopher George Berkeley, that there is no objective reality. Everything that exists only exists because the imagination, the intellect, imagines it. And they want their intellect to be the superior intellect of what the Greeks called the monad, the one, and the noose, the mind of the monad in the demiurge, the creator god. They want to wipe all of that out by forgetting about it. And once they have forgotten about it, it will no longer be a part of eternity. It will not become a part. It will no longer exist in the four-dimensional time-space manifold. Only their imagination will exist and their imagination will have complete control over chaos. And that is what the gods feared. That is why the gods chased Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden before they attained that state of knowledge. That is why the gods destroyed the Tower of Babel and created the generation of confusion where no two people could speak to each other in the same language to inhibit mankind from progressing and ripening the fruit of the tree of knowledge. The Garden of Eden, when it, the um, Tower of Babel, when it was destroyed, prevented men and women from being gardeners of the tree of knowledge because they could not pass on their knowledge to one another. They had to relearn it in each generation because every person spoke a different language from every other person. And that, I think, is a, a lesson that was picked up on by the Kabbalists. And they create on the internet these echo chambers where people are forced to speak with one another and develop their own language and their own norms and mores 
which are unintelligible to people outside of those echo chambers. So people have again become stratified like the and polarized, like the generation of confusion where no people can get together to form a cohesive force to defend themselves from this um, terrible quest to destroy humanity. So there are many practical aspects to all of these beliefs, and they don't necessarily accept these religious beliefs as if they're true. They take them as allegories. And there is the religious aspect of Kabbalah, but there is also the practical aspect of Kabbalah. And there is the practical magic of Kabbalah. And that is the coded um, lessons that are taught in all of this. Hmm. So all of what we see in Western occultism stems from this system of practical magic. Would you agree with that? Or is there many roots oh, to yes, this? Oh, yes, but it has many roots. It has roots in uh, Hermes Trigemistus. It has roots in the Chaldean oracles. And most of it goes back to Egypt. Pythagoras said that um, he was taught all his mysteries, which influenced the mystery religions by an Egyptian priest, um, Yamblichus, the... Um, Neoplatonistic philosopher uh, wrote a um, treatise criticizing Porphyry, who had become a religious Neoplatonist. And he said that all the Greek philosophy and the Greek mystery religions derived from Egypt. So I think Egypt is the source of most of it. Some of the allegorical tales, though, derive from the Sumerians, the Akkadians, uh, the Mesopotamians, and Babylonians, clearly. But um, I think all the core doctrines, the philosophy of the chaos conf is primarily Egyptian as handed down through the Greeks to the Alexandrian Jews who then composed the Torah and the Old Testament. And then uh, they also secretly created the oral traditions. And I think Kabbalah was uh, a copy of the Gnostics who were Platonists and of the Neoplatonists. And the Neoplatonists opposed the Gnostics on the sole grounds that they said that the Creator God is evil because they believe the Creator God to be good, Phanes Protogenes. Hmm. And when we look at the modern world, how many religions are pure of this influence, whether it be from the Kabbalists or another group of, I mean, the Vatican, are they manipulated by this same force you know what how do you then one of the primary forces promoting it behind the scenes and um sponsoring it i'm sure they have always been a part of this mystery religion in one of my recent videos i provided the proof of that um in the freemasons uh albert pike's book morals and dogmas it explains the fact that the early Christian church kept all of its true beliefs secret and had a class of elites who, and that Christians would have to pass through various initiations, which mimicked uh, the initiation rites of the Orphic mystery religions and the Mithraic mystery religions. And that he quoted from several of the early church fathers who said that real Christianity is nothing like what is taught in the churches or preached in the gospels, that there is a hidden doctrine, which only the very highest level know, and none of which is taught to the Gentiles. And he quoted in Morals and Dogma uh, exactly 
um, those citations. And it's a long list. It's a long list of the most prominent church fathers who said that there was this higher class and that he's, he asserted that Freemasonry was based upon this idea of this secret society that existed in the Catholic Church that knew the true knowledge. And that true knowledge was really a copy of the Greek mystery religions of Platonism and of Neoplatonism and Middleplatonism. Philo Eudaeus was a pronounced um, Middleplatonist. Wow. And some of it is uh, very insightful, beautiful, uh, wonderful philosophy. But the problem is that the oral tradition of Judaism made it dualistic and created these two worlds, the world of the Sitra Achra, the evil other side, and the Sitra Yamina, uh, the world of Kedusha, the world of holiness, and separated humanity into those two um, distinct parts and said that they have to remain separated in the same way that God separated light and darkness. So it becomes a vicious um, religion of um, extermination. It's an extermination agenda. And the other horrible aspect of it, which did indeed exist also in Platonism and in the Greek mystery religions, is the, the idea that the gods are androgynous, that the original form of humanity was androgynous, and that in order to establish the next golden age, humanity has to be made androgynous which I think is very much against nature and very destructive of humanity. And I'm not calling for the persecution of any person who feels that they have multiple genders or whatever. I don't understand any of it. I don't want to be involved with it. I certainly would not inhibit their rights or persecute them in any way. But I think that there is a pernicious force which is utilizing and exploiting those very people as well as the rest of us to destructively engineer post-gender, post-humans. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's disturbing the lengths that they've pushed this stuff upon people to think that they can modify their bodies. I mean, I remember... To, to children before they've matured and yeah. fully understand their, the beauty of their gender. Yeah, and it's clear to me and a lot of my audience that that's big pharma and all of their evil being pushed down the throats of more victims and you know personally i'm all for holistic medicine and a naturopathic way of going about things and i don't i don't see any herbs in nature that will change your gender for you so yeah this is clearly something satanic in my opinion i mean it's just it's astounding i wonder you know that's is there exactly any what it is is satanic right they want to um combine the male and the female to create this polarity of yin and yang which they call balance mm. and they want they don't believe that balance is the natural reproduction of human beings they view natural reproduction as a curse that was imposed on adam and eve eve was separated from adam and they believe that uh, instead of that they can substitute immortality so there's no more need of procreation and there's no more need of men and women suffering to find their ideal soulmate. Hmm. Now, are religions like Buddhism or Hinduism included in this prophecy? Are they a part of a resistance against this? I mean, do they see this just going all uh, without a hitch and, you know, the, the Kabbalists are going to win this and no one else will get in their way and stop them? 
I think there have been efforts in India for hundreds of years. I think the Sikhs were influenced by the bankers and the Kabbalists to become monotheists in India. I think Islam infiltrated India um, at the behest of those who were behind the uh, Arab conquest and the expansion of Islam in order to attack the idolaters. Um, Hindus are certainly considered idolaters as are Buddhists. And I think one of the subtle ways in which they do it is they try to appropriate Hinduism and Buddhism by showing the correlations between Kabbalah and Hinduism and Buddhism. Hinduism and Buddhism also have uh, these doctrines of the chaos kampf and the snake kundalini and the idea that there is this cosmic cycle. Um, there is Brahman, uh, Shiva, and um, oh, I've been discussing so many. Not only it would be on the tip of my tongue, but there are the three phases of creation, preservation, and destruction. Um, Hari Rama, Rama, Krishna, Krishna, Rama, Vishnu. So it is uh, Vishnu, Shiva, and Rama, I guess, or, or Brahma, Shiva, and Rama, are creation, preservation, and destruction. So what they do is they try to latch on to those religions and then say how this fits into Kabbalah, and that Kabbalah is like it. And in that way, they appropriate it, and they say that they are all one. And they have never been monotheists, so they don't really oppose polytheism. They are polytheists, and they acknowledge it. But they also have this doctrine that non-Jews have to obey the seven laws of Noah. They believe that Adam and Noah, uh, before the Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, with its 613 commandments, as Maimonides said, there were the seven commandments, the Noahide laws that were given to um, Adam and to Noah after the earth was cleansed, and that all are obliged to follow that. And that includes blasphemy laws, which prohibits anyone from criticizing Yahweh or Judaism. And um, it says that anyone who worships idols will be beheaded, which is what Jesus Christ is going to call for in the final judgment when he comes back to judge all the idolatrous nations, including the Hindus and the Buddhists, he will call for their decapitation. And he will call for the decapitation of the Edomites, the Christians, the West, for persecuting the Jews for 2,000 years, which was Satan's role. But that role will have been fulfilled because the Jews will be purified and they will no longer have need of punishment. So Satan will have fulfilled his role, and therefore uh, the Gentiles can be purged from existence because they no longer have a role to serve. Um, I, to answer your question, I believe they do try to infiltrate it. The priestly class um, has tried to infiltrate all kinds of religions, and you see it in uh, the Mormons, how they brought Freemasonry into Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and the Church of Latter-day Saints. Uh, the Catholic Church has always been a part of it. They even say that um, Peter the Rock was a uh, rabbi who deliberately infiltrated Rome and became the first pope in order to subvert Rome and the Gentiles. And they have prayers in Judaism, which cryptically celebrate that fact. And there are rabbis who uh, have publicly stated that. Um, so 
Also in Vietnam, they created very weird religions. Scientology is a very weird religion. The Monies are a very weird religion. So yes, I think there are very few religions which have not been impacted by this. And one of the ways they do it is by trying to show the correspondences between all religions and create an ecumenical uh, universal type of church. Like the Baha'i faith is one of the, the prominent uh, forces trying to do that. Yeah, that's, it's fascinating. I mean, as I stated before we got going here, I've had a suspicion against religion ever since I was a young man. I was turned off by the, you know, social pressure, the forcing me to go to a place once a week that didn't make any sense to me. People in garb that was nothing like I'd see anyone else wear in normal life and they're, you know, blowing smoke around and, and speaking in Latin. And really it was just, it just turned me away from that whole world. And luckily I was interested enough in history and, and nature and the world around me to, you know, not completely tune out, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating now to see, you know, the, this new, I mean, really it's, it's a faith in science, I think, you know, because as a kid, I thought to myself, okay, well, if, if all this religious stuff doesn't make sense, then it must mean that science is correct. But now I'm seeing that it may even be that groups like these occultists and alchemists have created what we consider science to fulfill ultimately a religious purpose. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, so many of the tenets of science, and some of them are very sound and very good, derived from the alchemists. The whole uh, um, scientific approach of chemistry derived from the alchemists. And the alchemists anticipated the idea of DNA by asserting that life forms are crystals that have a base structure, which... Um, grows outwards the way that crystals grow to form living organisms. They, they had many profound insights. It's not all negative, but it, the, the aims of it are negative. The goals of it are negative to gain control over humanity and to create this class of knowledge. And what you're describing uh, very much describes the way that Freemasons and Rosicrucians have always viewed themselves. They call themselves the sons of Samael, and they call themselves the craftsmen. Craftsmen is, an, is what the word demiurge in Greek means, meaning that they believe that they are the higher intellect, which employs science and technology as the mason to build chaos into the form that it should take and to rebuild the temple of Solomon to fulfill the cosmic cycle. So absolutely, I agree 100% with the way that you describe things, that science has been um, directed by the alchemists to fulfill these religious purposes. And that is why we view charges as positive, negative, and neutral. We view the atom as an androgynous particle structure, which incorporates opposing forces in a balanced way, and that when that balance is broken, the neutrons are released, which creates an explosive effect that causes the darkness to shine 
all of this relates very strongly to alchemy. And again, the whole Big Bang theory was formulated not by Einstein, but by a Catholic priest who had studied the Orphic religions and the idea of the cosmic egg, and specifically said that the Big Bang was actually created the, the modern physical concept of the Big Bang out of this Orphic religion with which he was familiar. Right, right. And that I am familiar and with. has and... pernicious, vicious ambitions of yeah. mass genocide and of converting a specific group of human beings into immortal androgynes and then turning all the others into soulless post-humans who have um, computers implanted in their brain, which rob them of their soul, which turn them into chaos, turn them into matter without the light of the soul, without the divine spark. Right. Yeah, and it, it's it's a purely political thing. It feels like it's been fomented and and channeled by this royal force this royal familial chain do you see people within the royal families being you know a part of this agenda inherently or are they pawns as well no they've always been a part of this agenda from early on the uh, israelites and the armenians infiltrated the royal class of europe and became the royal class of europe and implemented the doctrine of um, the divine right of kings. The idea that there is this central divine will, which the Greeks called the noose of the first intellect, the mind of the first intellect is this universal mind. And this universal mind enters into the mind of the royalty and becomes their will. It's also the idea that great men manufacture history because the great men absorb this divine will. And Hegel said that the divine will enters into some great men in order to mold society in an evolutionary process, which we perceive as the process of history. And what it is, is the universal divine mind experimenting with various forms of society through history. And that ultimately history will come to an end and the divine will will find the ultimate great man, this messianic Jesus figure, who will create the absolute ideal state. And then history will end and society will take its perfected form, which matches the royal court, the divine court of God. And that long before Hegel, that was part of the idea of the divine right of kings to rule over us. And again, this royalty was infiltrated by Israelites and Armenians uh, from the very beginning, um, long before the diaspora in 70 AD. They were infiltrating the rich families of Rome and Egypt and Greece all over the world, Babylon. So yes, and the concept is that there is this ultimate divine will and they represent it and that they have the right to be the ruler because their mind contains this divine will and that the nations and all people should be directed by the divine will through them. Otherwise, they would not have been made kings. But they, they don't recognize that if there's a revolution, does that mean that the people have the divine will? They never look at it that way, so they're entirely hypocritical. 
Hmm. But yes, I think you're, you're, I agree with your assessment completely. And yes, the royal family, even to the, in modern history, it was, um, oh, what were they called? Sexagatha or whatever. There was a royal family in southern Germany, which became the British royal family. And it was known that they were uh, Germanic Jews. And um, when World War I happened and when there were struggles between Germany and England, they changed their name to the House of Windsor. But prior to that, everyone knew that the royal family of England were actually uh, German Jews. And Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was the Kaiser during World War II, was the son of Queen Victoria's daughter. So there was a great deal of marriage going back from England back to Germany and entering into the Hohenzoller uh, family of the Kaisers of Germany. And they were also um, related to the Tsar of Russia. So World War I was viewed as a family affair between these German um, royal families who were actually German Jews. And that instigated and served as a pretext for all the socialist revolutions, which throughout the monarchies after World War I, because World War I was seen as a family battle between the monarchists and people hated it and they didn't want to have it happen again. So that was utilized as a pretext by the Marxists to toss them all out. And there were many in the royal families who participated in that and engineered it. They right. committed royal suicide so that Marxism could take over. Hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, someone that I've come across, George Hegel, uh, and he was at the University of Berlin, famously uh, a group that's right here in the same state I am in Connecticut, uh, Skull and Bones, is the second chapter of a group that was founded in Germany. Do you know anything about this group and how they fit into any of this research? Because they've been known to collect the skull and thigh bones or femur bones of many different prominent figures throughout American history and have used them in the same way that it's said that the Templars used John the Baptist's skull as a sort of oracle, which I imagine maybe that ritual had been prevalent as well in the days of Christ. I mean, we have the story of Golgotha where Jesus was killed. That word actually means skull, right? So he was crucified on, skull, yes. on top of a skull or plate or a, a pile of skulls. Yes, Golgotha is the place of the skull. The significance of the skull is that it is the mixing bowl. Mm. Uh, the Holy Grail is uh, the cranial bowl of the skull cut off and utilized to mix these two forces of light and darkness in the intellect. And that becomes the spiritual alchemy. Alchemy is not only a physical practice, it's supposed to be the process of rectifying your soul through um, spiritual alchemy. The bones become the matter or the vessel of the soul. And the skull is like the sephirotic vessel containing the emanation of the divine spark. So it represents the Kelly pot that contain that serves as the vessel for the light. And you need both. You need the shell 
which protects the fruit until the fruit becomes ripe, and the fruit is the divine spark of the soul. Um, let me think, in terms of Hegel, um, Skull and Bones is at Yale, you're right, and it had to do with John Kerry, whose family is a crypto-Jewish family. Their name was originally Cohen, and they changed it to Kerry. And it has to do with Yale University, if I'm not mistaken, and George Bush and the Bush family, which helped to finance National Socialist Germany. Um, in terms of the occult aspects of Skull and Bones, I haven't really researched it, so you can certainly find better people to speak on that issue. Well, I, I respect you answering, and I, yeah, I think there's so much that you've offered. It's definitely connected in, in some way or fashion, and I'm only just beginning to dive into many different subjects like the ones that you write about in your book. So this has been extremely informative for me, and I'm sure everyone who's listened this long. Can you remind us again where listeners can follow up with your work? Obviously, you have your website that has your books available. You also have a YouTube channel by the same name. It's cjbbooks.com. Are there any new books that you're planning on coming out with in the near future? Anything that's in the works next? Yes, absolutely. I have um, volumes three and four of my Satanic Secrets of Jesus Christ uh, very far along. I need to uh, organize them, edit them, and polish them. But I have the meat of it, and I'm coming up with a great deal of novel research. Um, so yes, that's coming out. Uh, I'm going to write a new book on the history of the formula E equals MC squared and um, who it was that originally thought of the ideas of atomic energy and atomic bombs um, much before the 20th century. And I, I have a lot of that material prepared. I'm going to be publishing that fairly soon, I hope, as the opportunity presents itself. Um, I would also like to urge people to uh, look into the idea that we have entered into an age of dangerous demagogues and that the Greeks anticipated the idea that demagoguery always produces tyranny, and we have to break out of that and break out of the two-party system. So I am hoping that someone will step forward to run as an independent presidential candidate and get us out of this horrible two-party system, which is producing increasingly bad and destructive candidates. Um, it is not only Russia which is participating in this quest to destroy the world in fulfillment of um, the prophecies of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, American Christians have long been playing into the game and identifying Russia as Gog and Magog and welcoming the idea that they will be raptured into heaven as the rest of us suffer from an atomic apocalypse. And I hope that we can get some people in politics now that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, Nick Fuentes, are speaking of Christian nationalism to oppose uh, this theocracy, which is evolving and which will lead us deliberately into the battle, a stage battle of Armageddon. And I hope that I can be one voice inspiring someone out there 
who uh, will represent the best interests of Americans, all Americans and the best interests of humanity and start to bring to an end this polarization and um, stratification and destruction of America that's taking place. This balkanization uh, pushes for secession, civil war uh, are a mistake. They are being funded by Russia and by our enemies. And I think that we can uh, change the tenor and nature of American politics if we become involved instead of allowing an entrenched political class to lead us off a cliff. And, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to express that. Well said and incredibly put. Yeah, I, I feel the momentum of your words and yeah, I'm excited to learn more. This has been, like I said, a lot of new information for me and I'm excited to dive into it further. And I hope to have you back on when I have a better <laughs> grasp of the information, maybe be able to ask at least questions that I'll think are better, but I appreciate all of the patience you've had with me as an interviewer and all the amazing information that you shared with us. And yeah, I look forward to learning more from you. And really, I hope that all of this can inspire people to start diving in and understanding better what they're a part of. Because I think so many people just unconsciously assign their lives towards things that they might not even fully understand the history of. And you are one of the great many authors who are helping us understand our history. So Mr. Bjorknes, thank you so much for being here and everyone listening. Thank you so much and have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Almost a three-hour episode immediately after our nine-hour episode. And I should say right up front, not that I think people made it this far if they got offended, but if you were offended by today's guest or any of the any of the statements he made or opinions he had, well, take that up with him. Uh, as I said to him, uh, this isn't the right show for a debate. I don't typically debate my guests. There are some occasions where I confront or contradict my guests possibly, but I this isn't a debate show. I don't think we'll be opening up uh, a debate, although I do endorse someone who is interested, uh, get in touch with Mr. Bjorknes and invite them on their own show for that sort of thing. Uh, this is just not the right place. But I was absolutely fascinated by everything Christopher had to say. As I repeated many times throughout this interview, uh, it was, a, for the most part, very new to me. Uh, keep in mind, um, I was raised Catholic, and it was very muted Catholicism in the sense that Although my grandparents were very strict and wanted me to partake in the faith, uh, it didn't feel like the onus was on me to learn anything. And the resources really were uh, lackluster, to say the least. So it just wasn't my thing. And there were so many uh, competing things that were making an impression on me and 
you know, at that time I was probably being psyoped in a million different ways that I didn't realize until much later. So, uh, I'm not typically the most, you know, traditionally religious guy. So I, I understand if you are a Christian and you, you were offended by what this guest has written about, maybe it contradicts what you believe or you hold dear to your heart. I know uh, certain guests I've had on the past would in the past would probably be offended. And like I said, if you if you made it this far to listen, uh, I appreciate you. Even if you were offended, uh, I still appreciate you. And yeah, I, like I said, you know, this is Christopher Bjorkney's opportunity to share his thoughts and opinions on this show. I'm not going to endorse every single guest's statements or opinions, but if I have them on my show, well, that means I think they have something to say. They have something compelling to offer. And even if it only causes disagreements, uh, maybe those, you know, that friction is what you needed to have more confidence in your faith. Uh, Me, necessarily, I'm not Christian, nor am I Catholic. Uh, I do believe in, in God. I do have a Christian family. And in that sense, I am a Christian, right? So, and I don't have any problem being neutral like that, where I can identify as a Christian through my family, but still, uh, have my own independent way of thinking about spirituality. You know, I still go to Easter. I still go to Christmas. I'm not like, you know, objecting to the Christian holidays that my, excuse me, I'm not objecting to the Christian holidays that my family still participates in. And I really enjoy and have fond memories. And I don't think that we need to uh, disintegrate our family traditions especially at this point in time. So if Christianity is what helps you keep your family together or keep your life together, well, then don't listen to what Christopher B. Erkneys has to say. This information isn't for everybody. And if that religion is working for you, well, then that's great. And I'm proud of you and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you found that. Uh, but other people are curious. And I think a lot of listeners of this show would be in that uh, position where they're curious. They may not... Uh, fall into every single ideology that they come across because we're discerning. We can hear somebody, you know, it's like something I talked about with uh, a guest coming up, uh, mental and emotional Kung Fu. And my interpretation of that phrase is kind of like this. Like you have this way of, of being in like Sam Tripoli says, karate stance when you hear an idea and you're just, you know, it's not that you're, attacking or defending you're just ready you know and that's what we all need to be we need to be in a position of awareness openness uh and have curiosity and be willing to uh venture into territory that could prove you've been wrong about things right and and if not if it proves that you are right well then you'll have more courage to enter new territory moving forward so like i said even if you disagree with today's guest there's still a valuable message you can gain from it. And I don't want to belabor that point too much, but I did feel a little nervous about this episode, not just for its implications uh, against Christianity, but the more obvious implications against uh, Judaism. You know, uh, this everything I said for Christians goes for people who are Jewish. You know, I, I'm not personally related to anyone who's Jewish, 
but I have friends who are Jewish and I have no problems with Jewish people at all. And we were talking about a very small 1% group of that uh, group of people, that very large group of people. There's a 1% group possibly, allegedly, that this author, Christopher Bierknees, has done a significant amount of research. So again, this is his game. This is his uh, thing, you know, that's his uh, court, so to speak, his field, his expertise, not mine. I have a guy like him on to open up that door, look inside, and maybe not step right into it, right? Um, although I do find everything Mr. Bjorkney shared with us fascinating, until I read his books in total, you know, I don't know if I'll have a one-way stance on what he has to say uh, for or against, right? I, I'm merely entertaining it because it's interesting. Now, some might claim, oh, well, you're being a negligent host by inviting a guest on who you're not aware of. Well, to be fair, uh, I was aware to some degree of what he had to share. I've listened to previous interviews that he's done. But I think that, uh, you know, with respect to that other show who I do know and have been a guest on, I didn't want to touch on the same subjects that he touched on on Aeon Bite. Shout out to Miguel Connor on Aeon Bite. So Mr. Bjorkney's talked about a whole nother sector of his research on that show. So I was saying, you know, what's most interesting? What's most compelling? What's going to stand out? Satanic Christ. Wow, that's interesting. You know, so like I said, this show might not be for you if you got offended. We have had guests of many different faiths, denominations, belief systems, so on and so forth. So we're going to keep entertaining a variety of beliefs and philosophies on this very interesting, open-minded podcast that is the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast because people's families think they're crazy for different reasons not all homogenous. We didn't all come here with the same story. And if, if you have something to say, get in touch with me. Maybe you want to get in touch with Mr. Bjorkney's. You can go to his website. The website is in the description. Check it out. Um, other than that, we just put out a nine hour episode, episode 200. So yeah, I mean, I don't blame you if you had to stop, but be sure to listen to the whole thing. Don't skip out on that second part. It's tremendous. Okay, we have a grand finale with the great Andreas Exertus. It starts off with a bang with Alex Stein talking about all kinds of craziness. Tony Merkel joins in talking about some inside information on the Georgia Guidestones. And of course, the homies Juan and Chris from Illuminati Confirmed and their own respective podcasts. Chris has Mensa. Juan has the one-on-one -on -one podcast. They joined as well. So it's a big, big episode, nine hours in total. There's Sam Tripoli, Michael Juan, Roman Merrill, and Ron Lane as guests on the first episode. Then, of course, episode two. But I did notice that, that we haven't had as many downloads on the uh, first episode or second episode as we have the first one. So I'm just like, okay, some people... Maybe they're saving it for tomorrow or something. But make sure you, you listen to the whole thing because there's a special surprise for people who stick around. 
And we got some cool merch on the way. I know my buddy Juan, speaking of Juan, has been making these really cool rolling trays that he makes out of wood. He's got a laser engraver. So if you're into uh, that kind of thing, you want a rolling tray, let me know. I'm trying to gauge the interest. And we might have some custom rolling tray merch that says, like, my family thinks I'm crazy on it. Or who knows what we could say. Maybe we'll find a a, a, a different phrase. Synchromystic exploration of the ever-expanding now. Maybe that's the phrase. I don't know yet. But either way, check those out. Let me know. Hit me up on Telegram. We got the Telegram link in the episode description. If you haven't used Telegram before, it's a great decentralized way to be a part of a community of people who listen to the same show you do. So don't be shy. Come on by. And if you really want to get down, come on over to the Patreon where we're going to be doing our monthly Zoom meetings with every patron, as many of you that want to join in. Because uh, a Zoom meeting can fit a lot of people. I don't know if you've kept up with the Union of the Unwanted, but we had over 22 people, including yours truly, uh, on Monday's episode of the Union of the Unwanted this week. So go and check that out as well. Yeah, a lot of cool stuff going on. We got Esoteric America pumping out episodes. We just put out episode four of Esoteric America on YouTube, Rockfin, and all of the podcast app listening platforms. And I've also got my show, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse with Michael Wan. That episode, the latest episode is sort of a blend from one conversation to another. Really interesting stuff. Go check that out on the Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed. And I just got back in touch with Michael Romanelli, my buddy Mike Romanelli, and we're going to be doing episodes of the Freethinker Society again. Don't worry, folks. The show's just taking a little break. Mike went down to the shore, you know, summer thing, Jersey thing. Uh, so we'll be back at it with that. I just had a good conversation on the phone today with Joe Roop. I had a good conversation on the phone today with Maverick Matthews, who will be back on the show for everyone who enjoyed his Interview episode 198. I thought it was a great conversation, although I wasn't feeling so well that day. Uh, I was under the weather, but we're going to have him back on real soon. I have more I'd like to talk to him about. And if there are any other guests that you'd like to see on the show again, get in touch with me. You could do it on Instagram, Twitter. You can get in touch with me through my website. My email is somewhere hiding on the website. Uh, You can also get in touch with us over Telegram, of course, the preferred way. Well, I guess the super preferred way is Patreon. If you sign up on Patreon, I will always, always answer your direct messages. There will never be a time where I do not get back to my Patreon. So everybody who supports the show, you come first. If you really got a message for me that you want me to respond to in full, Hit me up on Patreon. I'll even read it on the show if you'd like, if you have an experience or something like that. I do get a lot of Instagram messages about that kind of thing. Uh, it's just hard for me to focus on that while I'm recording. The phone kind of takes my attention away, so I kind of keep that over on the other side of the table. But if I had your message on Patreon, I could open it up in my browser and read it here on the show. So that's a a call to all patrons. Send me a story that you have that you want to tell. 
send me your thoughts on the show. Send me whatever you want. Shout out, just a shout out. If you haven't gotten a spirit animal name, let me know. I'll give you a spirit animal name. And that's it. That's it for today's episode. Christopher Bjerkney's. You could find all of his works at cjbbooks.com, I believe. If that's incorrect, uh, check the episode description for the link. It's been a while since I talked to Chris. Uh, he was very adamant that I get this episode out. I think he is worried about censorship, and I can understand why when he's talking about a subject that shouldn't be controversial. I probably mistakenly said that throughout this episode, and, you know, forgive me, but it seems controversial. I don't know. Am I just naive? Do I just not know enough? I mean, seems like some people really loved it on the Rockfin channel and people really supported it. So I said, all right, we're going to put this out. No worries. I don't care. YouTube could suck a dick. Although I do appreciate everybody listening on YouTube because that does help the show. I don't know how far we are into the algorithm, but for instance, I couldn't put episode 200 on YouTube because of all the music that I use It's just, you know, out of 30 something songs, uh, one of them had a copyright strike on it. And I thought I was good. I, I used mostly public domain songs, I thought, but this one song was not public domain. So it's not on YouTube, but it is on Odyssey for all you people who want to listen to shows on desktops for whatever reason. Or, I mean, geez, if you're using YouTube on your phone, just do yourself a favor and download a podcast app and listen to the show on a podcast app, it's so much easier. There's no ads. You don't have to deal with like keeping the screen on. I mean, I get it if you're doing YouTube premium and you're just like a YouTube head. Uh, I get it. So the show is there for those people, but you're not getting the whole show. You're not getting the David Icke episode. You know, you're not getting the arc from Destiny Lab, the guy who made the original intro song for this podcast. You're not hearing his episode because he went deep. He went so deep that YouTube put his ass to sleep. But virtually, he's still alive and breathing and kicking, and he's out there kicking ass and doing cool shit. Check out his band. Uh, you can find all their music, destinylab.com. And, of course, you probably heard the new intro song, now that we're in the 200s. Got to change up the music. I think every 100 episodes we're going to get a new intro song from here on out. Uh, so we'll see about that. But... Shout out to Halizna, who took the crown for intro song of the century of episodes, if you could call it a century. <laughs> Feels like a century ago. Uh, but anyways, here we are. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, podcast episode 201. We're in the 200s, and you know what I'm going to say. Send me a cash app, send me a Venmo, send me a PayPal, hook a brother up. I'm doing this show, putting out all this content for free. Please support your brother over here. I'm dying over here, folks. I'm dying over here. These groceries are getting expensive. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that bad, but I'm doing bad enough to need your help. So please support the show. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to get a part-time job or a full-time job. And maybe do two shows a month, four shows a month. I don't know. I don't mean to like threaten that. Like, oh, Mark says he's not going to do as many episodes. Listen, 
I love doing this show. I want to do it as much as I can, but I also love uh, paying my bills and eating food. So <laughs> I have to, uh, I have to weigh out, you know, what I'm spending time doing. And if it means doing less podcasts and more work, then I'm going to have to do that. So yeah, get in touch with me if you live in Connecticut and you got, uh, you got some work for me, or maybe you're, uh, someone online and you have like a online job I could do. Maybe you're listening, you have a podcast and you want help producing or editing it. I could do that for a fee. I've gotten pretty good at that over the past two years. Um, and, and just general consultation. I don't really generally like to charge anyone for advice, but if I have to, and you want to take up like a half an hour or an hour of my time to ask me questions, uh, I can charge you for that. So those are all ways you could support me. You could also get a AquaCure, uh, support your health, and you put 250 bucks in my pocket when you use the promo code my family, or I'm sorry, use the promo code MFTIC which stands for My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. That's our acronym. But you have to use the promo code MFTIC. You get 20% off, and I get 10% of that cost of the AquaCure, which helps out. Helps me. Helps George Wiseman. Helps you hydrogenate your life. Get more natural hydrogen into your body. If you don't know about that, go listen to episode 197. And take back your health. I've got my AquaCure. I'm starting it tomorrow. We're going to go ahead and plug it in and start it up and see what happens. And electrolyze our water and get that good water going and flowing and showing. And I'm just, you know, here in the ever-expanding now. So by the scene, edition one. Edition two is already in my brainstorming laboratory in my mind. I'm thinking it up. What will it be? So support me as much as you can. If you haven't picked up that book yet, pick it up. It's in the description. It's a travel guide for wherever you are. It's not like any other travel guide. It's a travel guide for wherever you find yourself. So pick that up. It's only $8. Uh, the link is in the description. It's called the Scene Edition 1. That's an acronym as well. S-E-E-E-N. Stands for the Synchromystic Exploration of the Ever-Expanding Now. It's kind of a fun play on words like magazine, scene. So anyways, have I said enough? Have I plugged enough? We also have Rockfin if you like the video version of the show. And also early releases as well. This episode's been on Rockfin for about three weeks now uh, since I did the interview with Christopher. And uh, yeah, I guess that's all the ways you could support the show. You could support on uh, Ko-fi with a one-time donation. You could also support on Buy Me a Coffee. But the Buy Me a Coffee thing is kind of tricky. And all the money that's been donated through there is just sitting in limbo. So... For now, I don't suggest people donate on Buy Me a Coffee until I have it figured out. But uh, yeah, Kofi does the same thing essentially. Or you could just use Cash App or Venmo. That would be most helpful. Cash App and Venmo do not take uh, as large of a fee as the other services do that go through PayPal. So that is always preferred. But whatever you can do to help, you know, if you find value in this show, send some value back my way. And, you know, I should say I made that nine hour, 200 
episode 200 for people who work for a living and listen to podcasts while they're working, you know, people who drive and go far places, you know, from where, where they live and they, they have eight hours to kill and they want to listen to a, a long podcast and, you know, each episode is about two hours. So sure. You could listen to four episodes uh, and take on a whole day, but this is like a eight hour experience. I mean, you almost need to like do mushrooms or something and listen to episode 200. I don't encourage or suggest people do that, but maybe you need to, I don't know. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So yeah, I should say, uh, episode 200 was a lot of work. I put in a lot of time, nine hours of time talking and then music mixing and all that stuff. So, uh, please support the show. Uh, if that episode 200 brought value to you, well, send me 200 bucks, maybe send me 20 bucks, maybe send me two bucks, whatever you can afford. If you could so afford 2000 bucks, that would be awesome. Not only would you get a shout out on the show, but you would all get a spot in the my family thinks I'm crazy.com hall of fame supporters. Uh, we already have three people that are planned on going up there, but yeah, if you want to donate a large sum of money, you go to the hall of fame supporters on the website forever. As long as we exist, we will have your name written in internet stone as a supporter of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast or whatever name you want. If you want to call yourself, you know, Buttplug22 or like uh, Silly Billy or Wild Wiener, whatever you want to call yourself, that'll be written on the website. So it's got to be a, a, a large donation over $500. But uh, either way, that's how we're going to keep this show moving and grooving with independent support from independent people like you and keep this show independent not bought out by any mainstream entities, not corrupted with ads. Although we might do that. I mean, I, I only put ads on the YouTube videos because fuck YouTube, you know, like if we're going to be there, might as well make some money off of them. And also I'm trying to de-incentivize people from listening on YouTube. Because if you don't like ads, you have options. You go to Rockfin or you can listen on Apple. You can listen on podcasts addict podverse or whatever podcast app you prefer that's the goal you know we i personally dislike youtube i think the algorithms are dumb and i think that you know there are select channels that i even stick with on there but i don't know it's hard to it's hard to compare my experience on youtube to the early days i mean my generation when I was in middle school, I had friends that were making YouTube videos and, and putting them on YouTube and getting like, you know, 50 views from all our classmates and stuff. And I don't even know if those are still out there, but yeah, that's like, this is kind of the world I was brought up into. So it's kind of weird having a channel now with up to 3000 subscribers when, you know, for the entirety of my life, none of that ever mattered, you know, followers, subscribers. I mean, I never had more than 500 subscribers, uh, or followers on Instagram or anything like that, Twitter or whatever. So it's just weird. You know, I never really cared about that. Now there's people that care about my show and they support on social media. I'm not that active on social media. 
uh, besides promoting the the show you won't see me posting all kinds of memes and stuff but i am there so hit me up and uh, let me know what you want to see from the show if you are that type of person who has creative criticisms or comments or suggestions i'm the type of person that's open to hearing it because you humble listener of my show are uh why i do this so thank you for listening and thank you for supporting when and if you choose to do so and i hope you do and i hope you also immerse yourself in this ever expanding now wherever you are in the now so uh, we've had a good couple of weeks of shows you know mark is doing a great job even yeah. though he drives me fucking nuts yeah. sometimes he's great no he's done a great job he's done a great job good job mark you can call uh me mark palmer mark palmer's cool mark palmer's it's a beautiful day to be alive Motherfuckers, it's a beautiful day, beautiful day, it's a beautiful day to be alive. That's all I gotta say. I don't think it's about money. I think they have so much. It's just about, it's, it's, it's a spiritual war, dude. It's so much farther. There's more power with spring flowers than pseudo-intellectuals filled by hate with the face sour. When it comes to the hour of reckoning, recollect, reconnect with days happening. Yeah, are you frowning or laughing? Are you making the grain or barely passing? Caught in the asinine like the afterlife. Obsessed with darkness after you mastered light. Cause it's faster than a blink. When it's a bastard latched to the clank, clang. The money don't mean a damn thing. Think happiness ain't coming from the bank, dang. I'm out here daydreaming. The spirit's the egg, the self is the semen. Uh, and that's cause life is the child And it takes a village to give it the illest style So, if your family think you crazy mm, And you ain't got a village No, you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin' Exactly, dude, you get it, bro You're so smart, everybody, you're so smart Feel like I'm waking up for the first time Crusty's on my third eye, but I'm back to the grind Pop the blinds open, let the sun shine Feel it on my skin like it's been sometimes Sometimes, depression got me flaking like Sisyphus Others got me messing with mania like Icarus And meditation helps with the sickness Some say it's human condition, but it just isn't There's more power in spring flowers The circular thoughts that leave the mind devoured Blurred lines between reality and fiction And some politicians get dirtier than dishes But for a minute, just forget about the government I'm looking at you and I and where the love went Cause we don't need a fucking village full of cynics Need a family to foster a life worth living if it isn't And your family think you crazy, yeah And you ain't got a village I know you always got a place here Come kick it, we chillin', yeah I'm a conspiracy boy Motherfuckers, motherfuckers I'm a conspiracy boy That's all I gotta say. Mark Palmer's cool. How are you, brother? I'm great, man. How are you?